my calculations are correct, when this baby hits 88 miles per hour, you're gonna see some serious shit. Synchronize your watches, Film 89ers, because this is episode 53. I'm Sky, and with me tonight is my fellow Film89.co.uk brother. It is, of course, Mr. Richard Roberts. How are you, Rich? I'm not too bad at all. How are you doing? Good, good. Stifling in this uh, heat, although I think we've got a thunderstorm coming over, which might be heading your way as well, which is quite fitting given the topic tonight. And is it safe to say, Rich, that this is the episode that you've waited over two and a half years to do since the podcast began? This is the episode I've waited for my whole life. (laughs) (laughs) So obviously tonight, as you know from looking at the episode title, we'll be going in-depth as we discuss one of the all-time great movie trilogies. Back to the Future from 1985 and its two sequels filmed back-to-back and released in 1989 and 1990 respectively. Now we'll be discussing the the behind-the-scenes and making of these amazing films, and as we always do when we cover classics, but we also want to give our listeners something more. If you want a definitive look at the making of these films, then you can dive into the huge amount of special features on the Back to the Future trilogy Blu-ray set, and instead of just regurgitating stuff you can find elsewhere we want to give you our very personal analysis of what makes these films so special and that's something that you can't get elsewhere because it's our analysis of the films which is personal to us but richie and i are not alone in this celebration of back to the future because we are joined via skype from new york by a very special guest he's a filmmaker an artist and is the producing partner of none other than actor Matthew Modine. He is a rampant cinephile and a very good friend of ours who's been supportive of our, of our endeavours ever since Film 
1989 began. That man is, of course, Mr. Adam Rakoff. Adam, welcome at long last to Film 89. Thank you, Sky. It's, uh, I, I'm surprised uh, I haven't found my way onto this podcast sooner, uh, but things have been just so crazy in, in uh, all of our lives. So uh, thank you so much for inviting me. I'm excited. Yeah. And I think, you know, you more than a lot of people have had, you know, 2020 has been a bad year for a lot of people, but you, you've had it particularly rough. And we're just glad that finally that you're able to join us tonight. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I'm doing much better. I had uh, some health issues uh, over the course of the past five months and uh, everything seems to be doing well now and I'm um, feeling much better. Still have a few minor issues, but nothing anywhere compared to what I was experiencing in the sort of April and, and May uh, months. So, yeah. yeah. Certainly, that is, that is good to hear. Right, so Adam, just for our uh, listeners who may, may not be aware of you, just take us through who you are in the podcasting world and who you are in, in the film Twitter world. Sure, yeah. Uh, well, you gave me a very nice uh, introduction there. Uh, you, you summed up a few things. Yeah, I've been working uh, for about a decade now as a as a filmmaker film producer primarily with uh, actor matthew modine who most people are familiar with from his film full metal jacket but he's also in stranger things and and just you know uh many many other iconic films especially from the 80s and and not in early 90s and uh, we do a lot of uh sort of independent projects together whether they be short films documentaries animated films sometimes we just work on events or charitable initiatives that we both believe in. So we do a lot of different projects together. And uh, I also work with James Hancock, who most of you probably are familiar with as the host of Wrong Real, the podcast. And I often guest appear on that podcast as well. And James and I also do some producing together on independent animation as well. So we do primarily we've done films for animator Bill Plimpton. We've we've produced uh, three short films now with him, two of which are available pretty widely now through VOD platforms such as Amazon and iTunes. A few of the projects we've worked on will be coming soon. I believe it's August 30th to the Criterion channel. There was a big deal that uh, Criterion, well, actually it was Shout Factory, acquired Bill Plimpton's entire animation catalog for from the past 30 plus years, really, and will be slowly, and they, of course, have a partnership with Criterion's channel. So they've been working together to remaster all of his earlier films in HD, and slowly they're going to be putting that catalog of work onto the Criterion channel. One of the first films that um, will be included will be a film called Cheatin' that James and I worked on in, and was released in 2013. So it's a really great sort of hand-drawn animated film noir that if you haven't, if you're a fan of more adult-oriented animation, it's definitely worth a check a check on uh, Criterion when that becomes available. Yeah, and then I'm on Twitter, as you mentioned. Uh, it's my only social media presence currently. <laughs> I'm at Adam Rakoff, so I love talking about film. I love talking about the projects I'm working on. And if you're interested, feel free to follow me. I try to follow people back. If uh, you want to ask me a question or if you just want to discuss any of what we discussed today, I'd be happy to continue the Back to the Future discussion on Twitter. Now, Adam, I, I first became aware of you, you know, long before I was ever a guest on Wrong Reel. I was a fan of the podcast, and I think it was the episode you and James did with Becky Deanna on, was it the Terminator films? And Was it Terminator 2? 
We did, yeah, we did a, an episode uh, on the films of James Cameron. Yeah, I'm trying to remember if we did a separate one on Terminator 2 because that's Becky Deanna's absolute favorite <laughs> movie. And uh, I think we may have done one, but we did also do a, a podcast that covered his filmography, his body of work a while ago. I think that was mid-150s to 180s, because I, I, I kind of started Wrong Real maybe about two years after um, James had started the podcast. Right, right. And and then, you know, I think it was December 2016, he invited me on for my first episode, and then, you know, I gradually became friends pretty much with all of the Wrong Real crew and, and a lot of the, you know, the core members of, of the team, as it were, and and then, you know, during the conversations we would all have privately, you and I discovered that we had a mutual affection for the Back to the Future films. Well, yes, without a doubt. <laughs> so obviously, as soon as we started the podcast, and, and as I'll come on to Richie now, the Back to the Future films are his favourite films. Back to the Future is his favourite film. You know, Richie and I were always planning on doing this episode. And from day one, as I, you know, as Richie will confirm, I said, Richie, the only person we're ever going to do this episode with is Adam. And because of various scheduling conflicts and and then obviously you know the the, the health issues you had this year that that episode was delayed and delayed but then you know as chance happens it's landed on the 35th year anniversary of the film um so it's quite fitting really but just moving on to you rich just take us through your love of back to the future and when you first saw it how it kind of earned its status as your favorite film I was thinking about this earlier on today. It was it was released on VHS in 1986. I was five when it was released on VHS. And my best friend at the time, his parents had seen it in the cinema uh, and had rented it on video. And he was telling me about this film, Back to the Future. So I, I, I must have been, it must have been probably sort of mid-1987. mid, eight, mid I was about six when I first saw it. I remember him telling me about how great the, the music was. There's a time machine in it. Um, you know, I loved Knight Rider. Um, and I think so. The car was, you know, the DeLorean was an appeal. Um, so we, we watched the, the, the video, uh, the VHS at his address, at his house. And I was just, I don't ever remember uh, associating anything other than joy with that film. From the, from the moment I finished watching that film that first time, it was all I could talk about. We then, I, I nagged my dad uh, to rent it again. And it was within within sort of 1987 into 1988, whenever we hired it, whenever we rented videos, which which wasn't all that often, it was Back to the Future was what I wanted to rent. And the only reason we wouldn't rent it was because if it was already out. And then Christmas Day, Christmas Day 1988 was the UK TV premiere. Uh, and it was shown at 10 past three on Christmas Day afternoon. Uh, it was shown straight after the Queen's speech. And I, and I can remember to this day, rushing through my Christmas dinner because I had to get into the living room in time to hit record because I wanted to get record right at the start of the Universal logo, and that's me, age seven. It's synonymous with me within my family. Back to the Future is it was that and Superman the movie were the first films that up until then it had always been. Uh, I've always had a, a borderline obsessive love of certain films, TV series, whatever. So before then it had been He-Man, uh, Thundercats, uh, but everything had been cartoon orientated. But Back to the Future and Superman the movie were the and Superman two they were the first films that grabbed me as as films. Uh, and have stayed with me for the rest of my life. It opened up, obviously, the door to all of the films of that era, particularly Back to the Future, opened those doors. Uh, so I'm very much a child of, of the 80s uh, in that respect. The, Superman and, and Back to the Future are the two films that, that I can remember watching religiously in tapes out, watching so much when I was a kid. 
and I, I just never got bored of them. And as I said, recording uh, recording that UK TV premiere, recording it again two years later because it was shown on Boxing Day two years later. That was the next broadcast of it uh, because I because the, the tape had gone to such poor quality over that time. I, I had the official skateboard for that for that same Christmas, a Christmas eighty seven eighty six. It, it was just in the small town that I grew up in. We had a one screen cinema, and we were general generally perhaps two or three weeks behind uh, national release unless it was the big sort of the big releases and back to the future part two came out uh, either the week of or the week after the national release and then the week after that was ghostbusters 2 and the first time i was properly aware of of what was coming there was postcards up on a building around the corner there was an entertainment venue around the corner from the cinema and they had uh, you know sort of coming soon to the cinema and there'd be postcard shots of certain scenes from from there and i'd i'd seen clips on on breakfast television about back to the future 2 coming but i somehow i hadn't really seen much and i can remember walking past this building and just staring at these images because they were certain scenes and I can remember one of the photos was Marty talking to Terry the old guy uh, who wants a hundred bucks to save the clock tower and, and I can remember just there was I think either six or eight photos and just been completely sort of drawn in and, and making sure that my that my mum took me it wasn't opening day but it was opening weekend uh, and it was Saturday afternoon uh, to go and watch Back to the Future 2. Likewise for Back to the Future 3 that, that wait that November to June or July wait that we had that was a very, very long six or seven months. Yeah. Now, now with myself, Back to the Future 2 and 3 are two of my favourite cinema experiences. But like you, Rich, even though I'm a couple of years older than you, I wasn't able to see the original Back to the Future in the cinema. But, you know, like you, I caught it and fell in love with it on VHS. Adam, were you lucky enough to see the original film in the theatres on its initial release in 85? Uh, no, I wasn't. I, uh, I'm i also a few years older. I was about uh, seven when the film hit theatres. And I, although we did go to the movies, uh, I remember seeing other films, uh, Goonies, Gremlins in the theatres. That movie I somehow missed, but my family was visiting uh, some of our friends in New York. I actually grew up in a small college town in Pennsylvania called Lewisburg, and uh, it actually is not that different in many regards to Hill Valley in terms of sort of the old school towns. There's a, a square, there's you know a Market Street. It just has a very similar sort of typical American kind of small town feel to it. And uh, we were visiting our friends in New York, and they rented this movie called Back to the Future on VHS, and this was in 1986, uh, similar to you, both of you. And we all watched it together as a family, my family and their family. They had two kids, uh, me and my older brother, my younger sister, and we just all loved it. It was one of those strange experiences where the parents were loving it, our, all of our parents were loving it just as much as the kids. And that rarely happened at this point in time. Most of the films that we were seeing at that age our parents were sort of sitting through <laughs> or dealing with yeah. while we were watching them. They really couldn't care. They were just taking us to the movie or they were uh, watching it because the kids wanted to watch them. But this particular film somehow played across this entire stretch of my, uh, my, my younger sister, who would have been four or five, all the way up to my parents who were in their 40s at that point. So it really it, it was a testament that this film could speak to so many different generations and be funny for different reasons for different audiences and of course the version we saw on vhs was the version that had the to be continued tag at the end which i learned later was not actually included in the theatrical release of the movie no. for me it always 
when I've rewatched these films in subsequent years on Blu-ray and they have put back the original theatrical cut, I've always been sort of shocked when they don't have that little ending. It cuts right to the cast names, you know, the, the Michael J. Fox yeah. and, you know, and I'm just like, no, no, I need the to be continued. <laughs> so it's, uh, I get it. I get they're trying to go back to the original theatrical experience. But like you said, for so many of us who missed that first film in theaters, that VHS release was the definitive version for us. And But I did, of course, see the second and third ones in theaters, just as both of you, and they really for were two of the most defining cinematic uh, experiences for me. And in particular, the 1989 as a year, and which is fitting for your podcast, was really the year that I fell in love with films. It really, I've obviously seen many films prior to that, but that was the year that going to the movies became sort of a spiritual experience for me, whether it was Tim Burton's Batman, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade, or Back to the Future Part Two. These were all films that sort of shaped and sort of inspired me in many ways to want to be involved in some way in the film filmmaking business. So this film definitely plays an important role. All, all of these, this whole trilogy plays an important role sort of in shaping who I became eventually as an adult. So yeah, it, it's just a remarkable set of films that are so just, they, they're so life affirming. They really make you feel good about life. They make you feel like anything's possible. They're funny. They're exciting. There's just, there's really very little I can say bad about these films. And it, I, you really have to struggle to find <laughs> <laughs> to find anything to criticize. And if they are, they're really nitpicky little details. So, yeah. uh, no, I'm glad, I'm glad you said, Adam, that 1989 is, is kind of like a, a landmark film year for you because much like Neil and I have said and Steve has said, it was around about that exact time, 1989 and going into 1990, that we all kind of, you know, the film sort of got their claws into us. I know obviously, Rich, you're a little bit younger than Hayden, obviously, then is a is much younger than, you know, the, the rest of the four core film 89 team. It, it was around about that time. Like, you know, when, when I saw the original Back to the Future, probably in, you know, 1986 on VHS, I was in no way a cinephile. You know, there were other things in my life at the time that were more important to me. Certainly, you know, like, uh, as, as you will attest, Rich, certain things on TV were more important to me back then. Things like, as, as I've discussed with John Aminu and Bill Scurry on the Transformers episode, television, up until a point, was more important to me than, than, than film. But then it was as we came into the latter half, you know, from about 1987, gradually then, and then kind of really kicking in in about 1989, films became more important to me, you know, as a, as a form of entertainment than, than television. And, and yet, you know, Back to the Future has, for me, always been one of those films that is, you know, Rich, obviously, you, you know, it's your favourite film. Adam, you know, you, you've expressed your love for it to me, you know, countless times. And it is one of, you know, my all-time favourite films, as is the, you know, the, the trilogy as a whole. But, you know, before we just go into our kind of own personal analysis of the film, let's just look at you know the inception of this idea of you know the story that would become back to the future the original 1985 film so writer producer bob gale he originally came up with the idea when he was visiting his parents in the summer of 1980 i believe and he was looking through an old high school yearbook and he got curious having looked seen pictures of his younger father as to whether or not he'd have been friends with his younger father and then he and writer director robert zemeckis pitched the film to numerous studios for several years before the film fell back eventually into the hands of steven Spielberg, who had been pitched the film previously, and then following several failures from Gale and Zemeckis, Spielberg, who still had faith in them, Back to the Future became the first Amblin-produced film made by Universal that wasn't directed by Steven Spielberg. Is there anything kind of key that I missed out there in sort of the inception of the original idea for this film? 
No, I think that it was more about Robert Zemeckis, I think, was was of a mind that he wanted to kind of strike out on his own, didn't he? And then they, they went and did, um, after the success of Romance in the Stoke, and all of a sudden he was hot property. So yeah. it was that thing of he wanted, he appreciated the, the kind of the support that Spielberg had offered him. He'd had two critical failures on the banks, and he thought, well, if I if I do it again, if, I, if, if, if we team up with Spielberg again and, and I bring a failure to the door, then that's the end of it. I need to try and do something on my own merit. Went and did Romance in the Stone. And all of a sudden then, you know, everybody was interested and uh, he thought, well, you know, Spielberg has, has backed us from the start. We'll, we'll, we'll go back to him. And, and he's given countless interviews, uh, Steven Spielberg and Robert Zemeckis uh, and Bob Gale, all kind of attesting the fact that he was he was very supportive from the outset. And, you know, he was kind of almost given carte blanche to, to do to do his vision. Yeah, your Romance in the Stone was that was a huge hit at the time, wasn't it? Yeah. Maybe in some alternate timeline, you know, if that film hadn't been a hit, you know, you, you would hope that, you know, Spielberg's faith in Galen Zemeckis was was genuine. You know, he seems like a very genuine guy. The original Back to the Future, in, in so many ways, seems like the perfect vehicle for Amden Entertainment because as much as it's got, you know, Robert Zemeckis's fingerprints all over it, it is one of those films that very firmly fits under that umbrella of a, a Steven Spielberg produced film, much like Goonies and Poltergeist. There's just something about it that sort of smacks of that that sort of Spielberg magic. Yeah. yeah, or even like amazing stories that could totally be a part of that series, you know, it, it, which dealt with all types of fantasy and science fiction themes. So, yeah, there there was something about that, that mid-80s Spielberg-produced content that this just fit perfectly in. Yeah, absolutely. But yeah, I, I would just add that for anybody that's ever or is ever trying to get uh, their screenplay produced, this is a great example of not to take rejection to not let rejection stop you because they were rejected i think 30 times uh, as they pitched it around in the early 80s and it shows you also that it wasn't the script that was being rejected because as soon as they had success with romancing the stone and that film made a lot of money at the box office they were basically given the opportunity to do whatever they wanted to do next, and this is what the, this is what they chose. So the people reviewing these scripts weren't really reviewing the script. They were basically saying, "Oh, this movie is too expensive for two for a writer and a director who haven't had any proven successes at the box office yet." So even if that script was, and it was, it was brilliant, despite the fact that it did change quite a bit throughout the various versions and even during production. This is a great example because looking back, films schools film professors use this script as an example of sort of a perfect screenplay where everything that is shown and seen and heard pays off in some way later in the film and just structurally it's just so perfect so it really just shows that the hollywood system isn't really looking at the quality of the writing or the script or anything they're just looking at at what something might cost and whether or not the names attached to that project will likely get a return on their investment and at that point in time Unfortunately, because their film, even though used cars was quite well regarded upon its release, it didn't make enough money at the box office for it to kind of give them a green light on their next project. So like you mentioned, if Romancing the Stone, uh, working with um, Michael Douglas as producer, if he if they weren't able to make that film work, who knows if any of Robert Zemeckis' films from that point on would have ever come to fruition. And how yeah. many films has he has he given us, you know, between Contact and Far Scum? 
films that just have become part of cinematic history. Maybe his career is owed more to Michael Douglas <laughs> giving yeah, him absolutely. that chance. But but again, if if you know if they'd got the green light two or three years earlier, perhaps we w- we wouldn't have had Michael J. Fox. We would, exactly. You know, people say things happen for a reason. I think that this is a you know, and obviously then with with the dramas that that occurred through the initial process of, of filming and everything, certainly all of the struggles that 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 were gone through were most certainly worth it. Without a doubt. Yeah. Yeah. Now on, on our previous episode, Neil and I we dived quite deeply into the sort of behind the scenes stuff in in the making of Jaws and Jaws is a film whose success is just thankfully based on so many happy accidents and acts of God call them what you want but you know a lot of the success of Back to the Future is just down to good decision making now you mentioned Adam the script without doubt I would say that you know there are few scripts in history that are just as note for note perfect as you know the final Back to the Future script yeah it went through loads of different iterations and, and like we said we don't want to regurgitate too much of the behind the scenes stuff that you can find elsewhere but you know even the actual plot device that is the you know the, the vessel for the, the, the time travel was originally a time chamber which then evolved into a lead lined refrigerator because you know in order to get Marty back from 1955 to 1985 it had to happen you know within you know the the blast of, of a nuclear bomb fortunately you know when when the studio said you know that that's just going to be too costly you know they moved away from that idea and then came up with the, the the brilliant idea of making the the time travel device as such you know a car and not only that they you know, they picked a DeLorean a car which from an automotive point of view, it was never a success. You know, John DeLorean made 9,000 DeLorean cars, and it wasn't a particularly good car. You know, a lot of people felt it was ugly. As far as its performance goes, it was nowhere near other, other cars, you know, by, you know, esteemed car manufacturers. And you, even the, the, the story about John DeLorean and the actual DeLorean car it, is, is absolutely fascinating. But like I say, you can, you know, you can find that elsewhere. But picking that car, because of its look, because of the fact that it had those gullwing doors, and then when you add all of those extra gubbins and bells and whistles onto it which you know doc brown would have done to turn it into this all singing and dancing time machine it's things like that it's decisions like that which are just you think my god can you imagine how restrictive it would have been if the time machine hadn't been a car and there were so many little things and that actually bleeds then over into the element of the casting you know as you said if this film was made maybe three years earlier we wouldn't have had michael j fox because michael j fox had always been the first choice for Marty. He was unavailable due to scheduling conflicts with his work on Family Ties. I think at the time, Family Ties co-star Meredith Baxter was pregnant, so Fox was pretty much carrying you know, a lot more of the show than he usually was. And then the show's producer, Gary David Goldberg, simply couldn't afford to let Fox go. So Zemeckis and Gale then cast Eric Stoltz, which, you know, as everyone knows now, I think they shot for around about six weeks as Marty. And then after six weeks of filming, Zemeckis and Gale, they really felt that Stoltz wasn't right for the part and the fact that a lot of the film's comedy just wasn't coming through in him. You know, not to take anything away from Eric Stoltz, he's a great actor. And Stoltz was even in agreement with him. But by this stage, Meredith Baxter was back fully on Family Ties. And then Goldberg agreed to let Michael J. Fox go to make the film but then fox worked out a schedule to fulfill his still ongoing commitment to family ties so every day during production he would drive to the movie set after taping the show was finished and every day average about five hours of sleep if that different versions yeah. of this variant and some go down to him having no more than like an hour and a half sleep each day but then the, bu- the bulk of production was filmed from 6 p.m to 6 a.m with the daylight scenes filmed on weekends but then in total reshooting eric stoltz's scenes added another three million dollars to the budget 
thank God Michael J. Fox came on board because, you know, he says of his own admission that he felt when he came on board to the project, everyone realised that he was the right fit for the film. You know, those six, previous six weeks of shooting, which just didn't feel right. And even Spielberg said in an early you know, screening of the, of the dailies, he, he said, are you okay with this, Bob? And, and Bob Zemeckis was just like, I just don't think he's right. And then Spielberg was, Spielberg was like, well, let's stop, you know, let's recast. And thank God they did. Because as well as the script being note perfect and word perfect, I think the casting in this film is absolutely impeccable yeah it, it is as you say it is absolutely it's often you say well you can't think of a better person to play the part well you know they, they, they've tested that that question haven't they they, they, they had the second best certainly that they deemed at the time because they couldn't have michael j fox and it just didn't work and as soon as michael j fox was on board it just clicked into place uh, and and likewise you know for for each you, you just simply can't imagine anybody else playing those roles and as, as i'm sure we'll come on to later with the the controversy surrounding Crispin Glover not returning for two and three, and then the the lengths that they went to 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 make that as seamless as possible for the audience, I mean it, it catapulted the story in ways that they hadn't intended on going. But it just again it goes to show that that, that George McFly was so uh, sorry Crispin Glover was so synonymous with that role they they they, they, they couldn't recast him. You know they they, they couldn't mm. they they did. But they recast. They made that person who was recast look very much like him and do an impression of him. They couldn't. They couldn't have George McFly as a main character again, played by somebody else. Yeah. You know, the, the the only the only obvious character that they did that with was Jennifer, which which again, I'm sure we'll come on to later on. But yeah, you know, the the, the core cast. They 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 absolutely nailed the casting with with, with each character. Absolute perfection. Well, I can share a little fact that may not be available anywhere else, and that is that when they decided that Eric Stoltz just wasn't working, that the comedic elements weren't coming through as planned, it didn't just instantly go back to Michael J. Fox. There was a bit of a, okay, let's stop production, let's not spend, let's not burn any more money on this, we know it's not working, but then there was a period of trying to get Michael J. Fox, but also if that wasn't going to work out, they were looking at other actors, and one of those other actors that they called and actually offered the part to, but he was given only 24 hours to make a decision, was Matthew Modine, my producing partner. And he was told that he had to just make a decision right away and that he was given a little bit of the backstory, but the issue really was that one of Matthew's very best friends at that point in time in his career was Eric Stoltz. And they did so many things together. They were just, they were very close. And Matthew, I think, couldn't bring himself to, A, A, he didn't feel he was right for the part. And that's one thing that uh, he has talked about before in interviews that when you look at actors and when they when casting directors cast actors he used the analogy that they're looking that that they're kind of like cereals that you know they might want cheerios but they can't have cheerios so another actor is frosted flakes another actor is lucky charms but they really only wanted cheerios well maybe they got eric stoltz was frosted flakes and matthew was lucky charms right sometimes you take the other cereal because that's all you can get but really at the end of the day you really wanted that cheerios <laughs> yeah, so yeah. it's like matthew still wasn't what they really wanted and i think matthew recognized that and also i think it would have been very difficult difficult for him to take apart from his friend had essentially been fired from and despite the fact that it wasn't really eric stoltz's fault it just he wasn't the right cereal for the role you know yeah. he wasn't the right taste they were looking for and whereas eric would be wonderful is wonderful 
wonderful in so many other parts, whether it be Mask or, or just there's so many of the roles that he's uh, some kind of wonderful, he's just fantastic in. So uh, Matthew ultimately made the decision in the short time that he was given to turn it down. And whether or not they offered it to any other actors, because they were all of that same age at that point in their sort of early to mid-20s, that's what they were. And they were also looking for sort of that actor that had sort of an Irish heritage, you know, that kind of fit the McFly, you know, Modine yeah. certainly would have uh, at that point. He would obviously be a much taller version of Marty. He's 6'4 yeah, yeah. yeah. at that point. I think Michael J. Fox is 5'4, so there, there would be a, a slight difference <laughs> There, but you know, but I think that the point just is that they, Matthew, I think, made the right choice in understanding what they were looking for was somebody with more comedic timing that could bring out those those elements of the script. Thankfully, in the subsequent days and weeks, they were able to work out that deal with Family Ties to bring Michael J. Fox back back into the fold. And like both of you said, there's now you can't imagine any other actor playing that role. Marty McFly is Michael J. Fox. They're, 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 it's like they're interchangeable, right? Yeah. <laughs> you will never be able to sort of look at uh, Michael J. Fox without thinking of Marty McFly. And I would argue that he really is one of the most iconic characters in cinema, right up there with you know Rocky, and how you know whoever else you can think of, you know these are characters that just will will go down uh, and be remembered a hundred years from now. It's it's a it's a really interesting process that that these studios go through. And I think I don't know if you mentioned it, but really Eric Stoltz was being pushed on Bob Zemeckis and Bob Gale by the head of the studio. They were really happy with his performances uh, in. Uh, previous roles and they really wanted to to see him in this in this part you know every as you said everything happens for a reason so here we are with michael j fox but it's not just michael j fox right it's everybody it's christopher lloyd can you imagine anyone else i think one of the other actors that was second was jeff goldblum he was the other actor that if chris lloyd didn't say yes jeff goldblum was basically the next offer they're going to give that right. part too but can you imagine jeff goldblum as doc brown as much as much as christopher lloyd when he played doc brown originally in 1985 he was younger than his character appeared right jeff was yeah definitely way too young and again christopher lloyd perfect casting obviously there's loads being documented about the difficult person behind the scenes that crispin glover was but you know his performance as george mcfly is a strange performance it's really off kilter but absolutely perfect for the film you know leah thompson as um lorraine baines or or, or would or obviously become marty's mother lorraine mcfly there was interference from the studio head sid scheinberg the head of universal at the time you know, he stepped in, looked at the script, liked the script, but he made little changes. Like, originally, she wasn't called Lorraine, and he insisted that her character's name be changed to Lorraine after his wife, Lorraine Gary, who was, of course, Ellen Brody from the Jaws films. You know, there's that famous story, the Spielberg recounts, where Sid Scheinberg insisted on the name change for the film, and instead of being called Back to the Future, it was going to be called, uh, is this Spaceman from Pluto? Yeah. Which is just a dreadful uh, title. But, but how, how they dealt with that was brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, you know, Spielberg then sent Scheinberg a, a memo saying, oh, thanks very much for that memo. We thought it was hilarious. You know, just absolutely brilliant, just kind of making it into a joke. They never heard back from Scheinberg. That's obviously the best way to manage it. Yeah, so it was kind of like, thanks for the thanks for the great laugh. Yeah. You know, you made all of our morning here, you know? <laughs> like, yeah. It, yeah. like, it was sort of a, this strange way of complimenting him while also <laughs> yeah. making it perfectly clear that, they were not going to do that. <laughs> no, that was very, yeah. that was very strategic move. That was. Yeah, definitely. Now let's go on to the, the you know the film's opening. 
Hey, Doc. Doc. Hello, anybody home? Einstein, come here, boy. What's going on? Oh, God. Oh, Jesus. That is disgusting. What the hell is it? That opening obviously very much sets things into place like the you know the mad scientist laboratory all the clocks being synchronized and then marty you know plugging himself and his guitar into the amp and that huge comically big speaker just you know blowing him 20 feet back you know <laughs> in, into a, a storage shelf yeah. what is going on between this bizarre friendship between a, a teenage boy and you know a middle-aged sort of reclusive scientist that alone on paper shouldn't work and this is even before we get into the main, you know, crux of the story of a guy going back in time and his own mother falling in love with him, <laughs> which I think is a, you know, that's one of the elements that did actually turn off a lot of the studios and thinking, yo, this is incestuous. We can't yeah. make this into a film. It's not going to work. In particular, Disney was uh, very much uh, offended by that. <laughs> they were like, they can't produce this movie. Yeah. yeah. Very, in, what you bring up there is is that opening that opening sequence and i think that it would be remiss not to comment on on how well made that opening sequence is the the time and effort and and everything that must have gone into that just that panning shot with with all the clocks ticking everything in sync the news reel that's running in the background you're learning so much this this is one of this is one of the many things that back to the future absolutely nails and that is you never feel like there are any exposition dumps you're learning about characters without even realizing what you're learning. And sometimes it takes two or three, four viewings and you go back knowing what's going to happen. And then things you pick up, they, they tell you so much in that opening sequence, whether it's, whether it's, you know, the, the, you know, the, the symbolism of, of the clocks ticking, as I said, the news stories in the background talking about the plutonium theft, the, the table clock that's got, um, that, that, that is based on um, safety last, which is obviously um, the actor Howard Lloyd hanging from, from the arm of the clock. Coincidentally, Howard Lloyd, Christopher Lloyd, but obviously foreshadowing um, Doc Brown hanging from the clock later on in the film. And then coming around then, and obviously uh, as you move away from the clocks then, setting up the Doc Brown as you say, mad inventions is is um, the dog food distribution and, and what have you, and then Marty coming in before, obviously, yeah, as you say, you know, he, he dials up the um, the the amp and and blows himself across the room, uh, and then as the conversation with Doc, you are right. I think that the times that we live in now, I think perhaps before people are asking questions about what is uh, the score with. Um, Marty and and Lorraine having a relationship. You you you're first of all going to be asking what is the relationship between Doc and and Marty. As I say, certainly in this day and age, I think perhaps that would have been the point of certain studios rejecting. You establish very quickly the fact that you know Marty's friends with this mad scientist, and then 
it's established that he's late for school. So then he embarks on his, you know, uber cool. And how cool was this back in, you know, the mid 80s when you see Martin McFly jumping on his skateboard and hitching a ride from Doc Brown's lab or whatever it was to his school on the back of various different vehicles on his skateboard. You know, that was the coolest thing ever. My dad drove a pickup. I had my Back to the Future um, skateboard and I used to hold on to the back of the parked pickup with my, <laughs> with, with my Walkman on and I'd wave at my neighbours Alamati going past uh, Lou's Cafe. It was, yeah. And, and of course, you know, it, it's, it's all hit to the tune of Huey Lewis in the News, The Power of Love. You know, a song which was created for Back to the Future. Yeah, which I believe was a was like a, a, a top ten hit by the time the film mm. opened in theaters. So, it, it because it was released bef- before the film opened, and I think that it, it was just yet another thing that helped this film blow up upon its initial release. Yeah, because you know, Harry Lewis is quoted as saying that he was concerned with the fact that you know, how am I going to integrate the the title Back to the Future into a song? And it was a mechanist just said, well, don't. Just yeah. you know, write a song that you think will fit into how this film, you know, feels from the point of view of what we've, we've told you about it so far, and he, and he did, and you know, it is just one of the all-time iconic pairings of a song with a film. And and at first you you kind of question like, what does the power of love have to do with this film? But then mm. there is that one moment where Jennifer writes "I love you" on the note yeah. on the yeah. back, the clock tower note, and then the, it kicks in again. It's the power of the you know, and it's yeah. like there you go, that was it, you know, yeah. that that was the driving force for him at that point in his life was his love for Jennifer and uh, and of course wanting that car, that 4x4. And that, that is, the, that is the, the exact thing Adam I was building to yeah. this next on my notes of yeah. going back to that perfect script is the amount of just pin sharp perfect setup and payoff in this film. Yeah. Now Jennifer and Marty have obviously been you know, going out with each other for quite some time so what possible reason would she have to give him her number but obviously that weekend she spent it at her grandmother's. Her grandmother's yeah. So, yeah so then and then you've got the old lady you know with the, the save the clock tower flyer which she gives to Marty and then that gives Jennifer cause to write on the back of that something which Marty folds up puts in his pocket and we forget about that until later on in the film when he becomes relevant but there's so much set up and payoff. They use the, the they call it the index card style of plotting don't they? Yes. It's, it's I'm very methodical. So so when I when I heard you know I'm not a scriptwriter how 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 it's done is is a science to me. But when when I listened to how Bob Zemeckis and Bob Gale planned out the the, the plot using index cards, this you know Marty's going to invent uh, rock and roll. Well, we need to show him sort of playing his guitar. We need to show him sort of in a band. The, this whole structure, the whole the whole way that they seem to plan out these certain things so that you had those satisfying payoffs, it, it just makes so much sense. And I just <laughs> I just wish that so many more films were as as well thought out. I'm, I'm not I'm not trying to do it any disservice whatsoever. Maybe I maybe I am simplifying things too much, but I, I just think that it, they've thought so well and so closely about how to uh, or, or how to explain. You know, start off perhaps starting with the result, and then we, therefore we've got to plant this seed early on. There's there's very few things within that film that aren't that aren't paid off later on, and if they're not paid off within the first film, then they are certainly paid off within the sequels. Yeah, um, no, that's where yeah. Rich, I think they, you know, there was methodical, meticulous plan in the first film, but as they've said, they had no plans at all to make a sequel, and that no, ending right. to the first film was pretty much a gag. It was a sight gag. You yeah. know, Doc coming back from the future in the flying DeLorean, 
you know, they had no idea that this film was going to become the biggest hit of 1985. You know, I think it grossed somewhere in the region of, um, it grossed $388 million on a budget of only $19 million. It was the highest grossing film of the year. This was, if, if Romance in the Stone was a big hit, then this was just something else entirely. But yeah, it was just an amazing confluence of all these different things. And, you know, the, the power of love being a hit by the time the film came out. Some amazing marketing, those incredible, you know, the, the first of an incredible trio of amazing Drew Struzan posters. You know, it was just the whole concept that, you know, the, just the feel-good nature of the film, just everything fitted perfectly to what a 1985 film audience would want. Also, you've got that completely perfect, you know, complex Rubik's Cube of a plot that fits together perfectly. But then, as you say, Rich, so many things which may not be resolved in the first film are resolved in later films. But that was never a plan. That's where the element, I think, of happy accidents comes into things. Things that weren't paid off, maybe due to time constraints or just because of the fact they weren't that important to the plot, get resolved later on in the second and third films. You know, as we'll come to, there are little elements that don't hold up to closer scrutiny, certainly when you apply a bit of the film's own logic to them. Certainly in, in Back to the Future 2, that's full of little plot holes that don't really make sense. But there's so much, if you put aside those little nitpick elements and you look at how well this trilogy as a whole fits together it all comes back to how well made that first film was and just what a complete understanding of balancing you know humor science fiction fantasy just the all-round complete package that, that original film was couple them with the fact that you've got incredible dialogue so many memorable lines like you know when this thing hits 88 miles an hour you're going to see some serious shit and all the little dialogue exchanges every line of dialogue for biff tannen has got you know, throughout oh. the entire trilogy is this golden. It is It is absolutely golden, isn't it? It is. You know, we, we haven't even come on to what, for me, is the thing that pulls it all together and just puts a complete shine and a polish on it. And that's Alan Silvestri's score. Yeah. It's stun- it is stunning, isn't it? Rich, you and I have, have spoken at length about film scores on this podcast. You know, uh, myself and Stephen Simpson and Steve Amos did a huge episode about Jerry Goldsmith and his career where we just went into, you know, film scores and what makes them so great. You know, Neil and I discussed in the last episode about the incredible work John Williams did on Jaws and obviously we've, Rich, discussed The Empire Strikes Back and why that is one of the all-time great film scores. But up there, for me, Sylvester's score for the entire Back to the Future trilogy is as perfect a film score as you will find anywhere and like we've said with jaws take the music away the film becomes that much less effective i'd certainly say that that applies to these films as well i totally agree i think that if uh if you watched i'm sure when they were doing their edit of the first film there was a point where there was a temp score or no score and i'm sure the film played i'm sure it worked you know comedically and all of that but it i would imagine that when they first sat down to watch that movie with that score added, it was just, it, it, it elevated that film to almost epic proportions that probably you wouldn't imagine were possible without that score. And it, it's, uh, and it was in fact uh, a note that Bob Zemeckis gave to Alan Silvestri that he did not want it to be like a synth score, which was highly popular at that point in, in films. He didn't want it to have that kind of computer synth pop tone which you know is kind of at this point in time with shows like stranger things it's very retro and cool again but at that point they really wanted a classical full orchestra score and i believe it was the biggest uh orchestral score that universal had ever recorded up until that point uh at the studio so it was just an enormous investment financially as well as uh 
you know, time-wise, in, in when they were really down to the wire to finish this film, to, to make the score. I mean, sometimes scores can be an afterthought on films when they're really down to the wire, but this was certainly uh, viewed as such a, uh, an, a crucial component to the film, and they knew they wanted it to be big, as they said, just huge. Like, they wanted the music to just uh, to lift you up and take you to another 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 place another time and literally <laughs> you know so it's uh, it really is amazing and i was telling uh, rich when we were doing our little uh tech check yesterday that it, it's one of those scores that despite how many times i've heard it and even as i watched all of those special features and all of the blu-ray discs i and how many times they they recycle the score in the background i just somehow don't get tired of it it just it it plays it's such a a, a beautiful uh, composition it just it it just transports you every time you hear it and I of course have had it playing in my mind for the past <laughs> few nights every yeah. night when I'm going to bed so uh, it's been keeping me up a little bit but yeah it's a, it's such a go sort of it's just it's such a driving force for the film when that score kicks in in particular during what I think might be one of the most iconic sequences in film history is the initial skateboard chase in the first film when that music kicks in there it's just one of the most that's the point why i remember watching the first film that is the point when i was like oh my god i love this movie yeah. <laughs> you know that yeah. that was like that moment where you know he was doing stuff back in time that you know it was like the dream like every young kid wishes they could stand up to the bully right and here this kid was you know doing stuff that you couldn't even imagine and everybody was watching him and you know cheering him on it was just a fantastic uh sequence and with that final move that he does allowing the skateboard to, to slide under the car as he as he basically runs on top of the car uh which of course was a stunt double but you can't really tell unless you watch it frame by frame <laughs> uh, uh it's just such a you know and then they then the car rams into the manure truck and it's just everything about that sequence is just is perfect and uh it just elevates the film and i've heard stories of people in the theaters um from friends who saw it in the theater that said people were cheering like that yeah. this was at a point in time when people were clapping and cheering after that sequence it was just such a a groundbreaking moment and it really shifted the film in a whole new direction at that point it, it, kind of encapsulate, it encapsulates yeah. that sort of film it, 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 yeah it, you can't watch that sequence without smiling it is it, it as oh, you yeah. said that, that that's that time that the, th the thing kicks in and and that sequence is is kind of what the film is about from sort of marty's point of view and and it, it, it's as you say standing up to the bully um <laughs> it's it's just it's just a, a great a great sort of representation and as you say it is at that point we are we are properly into this film now and and this is you know you you're probably not going to stop smiling throughout yeah i i would argue no one could no one could watch that movie to that point and be like i'm i'm going to go to bed now <laughs> if they've no. never seen it before you know even if they have i feel like at that point you just want to keep watching you're, oh, you, do, yeah. you can't you can't ignore it you just need to to see it come to uh, to the conclusion but yeah, it's fantastic. And, you know, it, it, the, the score, you know, pr pretty much in the, in the first portion of the film, which is kind of like, you know, the, the high school sort of thing, focusing on Marty, and then he meets up with Doc, and it's at the point where we see the DeLorean getting that awesome, you know, like iconic reveal from the back of the truck that is where that sort of awe-inspiring science fiction sort of element of Silvestri's score first really kicks in big time. Mm -hmm. And then you've got, you know, an amazing action scene. You've got that, you know, one of my all-time favourite 
bits and film is, is where Doc realizes that you know the Libyans have found him, and then you've got that whole thing of you know Doc Brown was conning these Libyans out of plutonium <laughs> in order to you know on on, on a, a false promise that he was going to make you know a plutonium bomb for them, which you know, if you think about it, really is quite messed up. It is, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Again, it's something that probably isn't getting past anybody yeah. in this day and age. Now, maybe you could see why Eric Stoltz sort of took this film so seriously and sort of shied away from more of the comedic elements of the script. You know, you've got young kid is friendly with a crazy scientist who is, you know, making a bomb for terrorists. He steals plutonium off them. A uh, young boy ends up going back in time. His mother falls in love with him. He's at risk of erasing his family from existence. And, you know, he, he may have looked at that and thought, yeah, this is some really intense, deep existential stuff. And, you know, yeah. th- this is more like, a, you know, a psychological psychodrama science fiction as opposed to you know an action adventure comedy well and eric stoltz was also a a method actor and that that played a big part i think in his he needed to be called marty on the set he needed to be really immersed in that role and become that character and i think in in particular for sort of a comic role like this that's that's harder to do because you have to be a little more tongue-in-cheek a little more loose with the script there you know you have to leave room for improvisation and that's harder when you're going going to the method acting because that when you're doing that you're really good trying to become that that character and even when the cameras aren't rolling you want to be in character so you you kind of never leave that that headspace so yeah there i mean again he's a brilliant actor has done terrific work it's just like i said before the uh it's the serial analogy you know there there's a, a different flavor that you're in the mood for and if it's not the right flavor it doesn't mean that that other cereal isn't great on another day at another time but it just might not be what you want right then and there uh i just want to go back real quick to um the characters in the film they are so iconic and all of the characters even the minor characters as we as as we've said they all have a purpose right and it kind of goes back to the late great film critic Roger Ebert, he had this uh, law that he always talked about in in films called Ebert's Law of Conservation of Characters. And what that basically meant was that any character whose purpose is not readily apparent must be more important than he or she seems to be upon initial introduction. So whether it's Strickland, you know, the, the principal of the school, you know, you might think he's just the principal. He's gotten in trouble, but no, he's coming back later, and he's going to play an important role throughout the whole trilogy. So, that's again why these films work. Every even minor character pays off in some way later on. They're they're there for a reason. They're not just window dressing. They're not just there in the background. They have a purpose. Their their actions have a purpose. And even the woman who's saying, like we said, save the clock tower. She's there to give that flyer to marty so that they can figure out that the when the clock tower will get struck by lightning therefore that's how they're going to get home so it's just remarkable really if you watch these movies and just focus on the background and don't even watch the actors you see so many additional little what you would call easter eggs if you will but really they're just things that have been so well thought out whether it's the name of stores things that are written on newspapers Everything was purposeful. 
And you just cannot say that about the average film. Most films just assume audiences aren't going to pay attention that closely, and they try to get away with things. And they knew that their audience was smart, intelligent, and that every little detail... uh, And I actually found new things this time around that I never even noticed before, and I, I love that about these movies. For example, in that opening sequence that we talked about earlier, the video camera that Marty, sorry, that Doc tells Marty to go pick up before he meets him is actually seen on the corner of of Doc's bed. So, like, they set that up right then and there. Like, you wouldn't Mm -hmm. even see it. And if it was uh, if it was on VHS, I, I think it would have been cut off. It was like on the right side of the frame. So it's just such a, an amazing film for so many reasons. But to me, those are the things that keep me coming back for more because I always notice those little uh, those little Easter eggs, those little payoffs that I just somehow missed before because you're so focused on the main action and the main characters and the dialogue that all those background, all those details just sort of uh, get lost, at least in initial initial viewings. Yeah, and, and for me, you know, aside from all of the amazing things that we've said, this, these films do so well. You know, the characters, the script, the score, you know, the performances. It's the way that time travel is handled and the way it's depicted and put on screen. And it's just like that feeling you get. Like when Marty first goes back in time to 1955, it's nighttime at first, but then the next day he's walking into Hill Valley. You've got that scene just prior where he hides the DeLorean near the Lion Estate, which is the place that he will live when he's growing up as a kid. But all you've got is those two stone figureheads you know, with the, with the line of state sort of entrance. And beyond that, it's just a dirt road. You see a couple of, you know, construction diggers and stuff just, and it is just one of those scenes that just gets me every time. But you brought, you brought up that scene and uh, that was the one scene that I wanted to talk to you guys about real quick, because I, something sort of occurred to me upon this viewing that I never really thought about before. And that is that uh, when he just arrives in 1955, the time is, I believe, 1.21 a.m. Because that was yeah. the time that he, it says on the on the time circuits, right? Mm-hmm. If you if you remember just before he arrives, I think he arrives at 1.16 or the clock just hits 1.16 at the Twin Pine Mall. And Doc, I think, calls him at home to remind him, wakes him up at uh, 12, was it 12? 30 or 12:45 it's about maybe it was 12:45 it was about 30 minutes prior and he tells him to go get the video camera at his uh you know in his garage and then meet him and he does so uh on his skateboard right so the mall can't be more than 30 minutes even if he was hitching yeah, yeah. rides on the back of cars so then he arrives in in 1955 in the barn at exactly 1:21 a.m. He drives out, and old man Peabody shoots the <laughs> the other mailbox, and uh, and it, thus it becomes Lone Pine instead of Twin Pine. And then you see as he's driving away that the sun is starting to rise. And then the next shot, he's pulling up to the line of states, and it's basically morning. And I never understood after watching this how that was possible. How did you know eight hours or seven hours? I'm not sure what time sunrise was at that point in California, but. Somehow there's like five to seven hours in time that seems to be gone. And that's the only thing I can say that might be... <laughs> this is us having watched this film now for 35 exactly. years. Yeah. Now, there were little things that I thought of on recent rewatches. How did Doc convert the DeLorean to be driven remotely? Because 
A remote control car has got completely different mechanics to a full-size car. He would need to install little things that would actually operate the accelerator, you know, the gear stick, things like that, the steering wheel. If you think about that practically, a remote control full-size car that is, in all, you know, for all intents and purposes to look at, visually looks like a normal car. It just doesn't work. But what yeah. I come back with is it's a time machine. If we're accepting that the yeah. DeLorean is a time machine, we're yeah. going to accept that the remote control will probably operate it. Right, right. Like I said, it doesn't take <laughs> away, the, none of this, these little nitpicky things take away. I just, I never thought thought about it. No, no. Previous viewer, viewings that, 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 that there's sort of like this weird acceleration of time, if you will, between the point that he leaves the barn and that he pulls up and hides the DeLorean behind the, the yeah. billboard. The, there's... Uh, a strange lapse there that they obviously just wanted to get to daytime so they made you think that it was much either much later than it really was or 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 i don't know but anyway again it doesn't really play badly in any way especially upon early viewings this is something that only comes to you as you try to sort of analyze the film shot by shot and yeah, really yeah. pick it apart. It, I, mean, it, I, I, I don't know what time dawn is in California. It was October, wasn't it? It was. It was. It was. Well, no, it yeah. was guys, it, like, it, it was gets November, a pass. It? You know, time travel. <laughs> time travel is theoretically impossible. Like it's like you say, Rich. If you're going to buy into the fact that you know there's very small, you know, in in terms of the energy required to travel through time, one would imagine this little small flux capacitor can make time travel possible. Then yeah, you know. It, it's one of those things that you've, you've we are in science fiction territory yeah yeah well and, and oh, just real quick with that sequence the, when he's controlling it by remote i never knew this but einstein the dog is actually a man in a dog costume in the car driving the car which is something that i only <laughs> found out about watching yet another behind the scenes making of featurette I did not know that yeah it's the funniest thing too because they interview the man who's wearing the suit and he's got like a giant dog head costume <laughs> and he's wearing a full black leotard but he had to drive with his hands at the very bottom of the wheel so you wouldn't see them obviously through the window so it's just amazing that he get away with that you know yeah. that <laughs> it's mm-hmm. uh it's just another element of movie magic that you never really even think about well how how are they controlling that car with a dog inside it <laughs> you know i wonder if it's, if it's the same guy that dressed up as the bear in back to the future three because <laughs> it's, it's clearly a real bear when you face on but when it right. stands up and you the camera's behind it's clearly a man in a costume <laughs> right, right. It, that could be that guy might be the uh the go-to actor for animal <laughs> <laughs> yes definitely performances so then obviously we've got that line line estate scene is just one of just visually just one of my most it, it just gets the hairs on the back of my neck going because the fact that he's traveled back to when the place where he lives has not even been built yet yeah and then we go into you know we talk about great Alan Silvestri scores but then the use of music in the film existing music with Mr. Sandman playing when Marty walks into this you know the lovely picturesque 1955 town of Hill Valley and that entire scene with him just walking around completely stunned of the fact that he is now 30 years in the past. It is just one of the you know the all-time great scenes in, in, in any film for me. Oh yeah, and, and the fact that this was all filmed on the Universal back lot is even more remarkable, remarkable because at the time when I saw this movie for the first time at least, I didn't even think about that. I just thought, oh, they found an old town, you know? Mm, <laughs> like, yeah. You know, but as, as, a, as a young viewer, you don't think about these things. But then as you get older and you realize that, you know, these things have to be constructed, they have to be built. I assumed still that they had found some type of town that they sort of retrofitted to make it feel older. But 
when you learn that that was too costly and too difficult for them to do, and that they decided just to construct everything on the back lot, you realize what a better decision that was because they really had free uh, reign to just do whatever they needed to do to make that town feel exactly like it would in the 50s. And so many people that were alive at that point have said that it was spot on. Like you really, it really felt like a town out out of 1955. I I, I don't know whether or not it's the same for you, Adam, being being in the US. As a a child in the UK in the 80s, I had a real affinity with with what I perceived to be 1950s and 1960s America. There was obviously Back to the Future, Happy Days, Grease, Quantum Leap. Every other episode seemed to be sort of in the 50s or the 60s. And and I I presume it's a very romanticized view of that. But in in my head, certainly as a sort of, you know, up to the age of 10, I had this sort of belief of what I thought America was like. And if it wasn't New York from the various films set in New York, it was, you know, you were either New York you were either in the Old West or you were in kind of 50s diners and, and everything was very sort of 50s and 60s. I don't know whether or not it, it's perhaps, it was so different to what we had as a culture over here, uh, or certainly what I experienced, but uh, I was fa- absolutely fascinated with it. And as I said, so much of the so, so much of the, uh, the films and the TV shows that, that I was watching seemed to be very, and like it's going back to Superman again, you know, Superman as a, as a young man, it was, it was uh, sort of late 50s, early 60s in Smallville and everything was, there was that look it was diners and 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 sort of rock and roll music as i say that, that seemed to be my kind of view of what 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 america was like oh yeah yeah exactly the same for me rich and and for for, for us brits that was a very sort of idealized kind of caricature of a certain little segment of american culture which we just feasted on because you know you have a look at britain in the 80s my god you're around about the time of you know back to the future's release you know you'd had the the after effects of the miners strike which hit you know huge portions of the country you know you've got british weather for a start i've got fond memories of certain years you know in the 80s where we just had incredible long hot summers summers spent on the beaches but then at the same time i've also got memories of just dreary drab weather and there's just nothing in british culture that can compare to that sort of very idealized and it was something that you know neil and i picked on when we were watching jaws on the last episode that that sort of picket fence sort of um, amity being just like this beautiful looking place and everything very much idealized we don't see in the back to the future films apart from when it's intentional in the mm. you know alternate 1985 where things have gone completely to ratchet and, and we see like slums and ghettos and and just you know things being really run down you've got this in the first film certainly this perfect idealized version of 50s americana i just lapped it up i love so much the the sort of recreation of california in 1955 it's just done so well whether it's actually accurate to how things were you know i'd imagine a lot of it is because there's so much attention to detail placed on you know the fashion of the time the vehicles the the, the way the storefronts are done the, the, the music that we hear and, and then even then when we go into Lorraine's family home, see what their family are like, the way they dress, the way they talk, you know, the things they're watching on TV, it's just all done so well. You know, to me, it just it seems as if there's just a huge difference between 1955 and 1985 when really in our lifetime now we've already seen a span 
you know, between, like, if we look back now 30 years, are things for us that different now to how they were then? They probably are. It's just when you live through a gradual change of 30 years, things don't seem to change very drastically. But when you, you know, you jump from how things are in one decade, you go three decades past, and God knows what things are going to be like for us now in 30 years' time and for our children. But, you know, the way it handles that thing of Marty just being smacked in the face by the fact that, you know, when he picks up the newspaper and he has to look, he has to have confirmation about the fact he's gone back in time. Yeah. And it's awe-inspiring to me. And it even goes in the other direction than in the next film where he goes into 2015. You know, that scene where he's just walking down the alleyway into Hill Valley. And it, it, it's it's that scene from 1955 done, what are we talking then, 60 years yeah. you know, on. But it's just he's just as in awe. And if you think yeah. about it, in what it used to be like and what it, it might be like, both of them were were so foreign to him mm. or equally foreign and uh, i think that a lot of uh, a lot of historians have at least here in the, U- in the u.s have talked about the sort of similarities between the 1950s and the 1980s it, 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 that as far apart as they are they actually mm. have a lot of they mirror each other in a lot of ways you know especially in how teenagers behave the, the 50s were sort of that first era of teenagers being marketed to with cars, with music, with, you know, going to diners, like all those things you mentioned. Before that, they weren't really seen as a a market, right? They were just Mm -hmm. young people that needed to become adults, right? And then all of a sudden, they were seen as this whole new demographic that that was being targeted and in a similar way because the 60s became a very different decade with you know the anti-war movement and the hippies and then the 70s was this kind of really odd decade with you know a lot of uh, rising crime and you had nixon and his resignation and you had the disco era there were so many strange things about the 60s and 70s that the 80s seemed like sort of a return to the Mm. 50s in many regards with rock and roll music and kids hanging out at you know at arcades or in diners again it just sort of things sort of came around again so it it does kind of make sense that that they chose the 1955 time like as i said a mirror of the 1985 period and as there are those similarities that that you can draw they get good mileage out of the fact that this young kid from 1985 is going back 30 years and taking with him the knowledge that he has got. First off, just in his appearance, he's wearing this, you know, what everyone thinks they call it, a life preserver, thinking that he's, you know, just got off a ship. He's, yeah. he, he's you know, a naval officer. The dog thinks he's going to drown. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> then you've got the fact that he's talking about Ronald Reagan being the president. You're just mentioning things that to someone from 1955, Ronald Reagan, what, the actor? Yeah. You know, that, that's just completely absurd. You know, if you think now, if you were to practically take one of us and take us back in time to 1990 and just drop us off there, would our clothing look that different? Probably not. Would our you know hairstyle and whatever be radically different? No, I would say it wouldn't. But if you took me as I was dressed, say, you know, this time yesterday and dropped me back in time 30 years, the one thing that I would have which would cause massive repercussions potentially would be the fact that in my pocket I have got a supercomputer. Yeah. I would have had mm-hmm. an Apple iPhone, the power, you know, the processing power of which, if you were to give that to scientists back in 1990, that would change the world. Because you think about how technology has changed and the fact that the processing power, the way that this thing is basically, it is a computer, an incredibly powerful computer that we all take completely for granted. It's no longer just a phone. You know, its practical uses as a phone have long since been relegated to like, you know, the, the fourth or fifth most important thing about it. Yeah, granted, it wouldn't work very well because the fact that you go back 
back in time there wouldn't be a signal because there's no satellites up relaying information to this phone but you know you would still be able to do things on it you would be able you know, it would still have some limited it would still function as an offline device you know anything would, that yeah. required uh, that didn't require internet would yeah. work if you had downloaded music or or movies on there you could watch them on there i mean and camera. that would blow anybody you know their head out of the water you know it's just like, just d- digital camera alone yeah, the digital camera alone is unlike, yeah. you know, if you look at the, the, the video camera that Marty takes back with him, you know, this is big hulking thing where you would like rest on your shoulder and look into, yeah. and you just look at how technology has changed, like the internet, trying to explain to someone. Now, you know, the, the actual internet as a device was de- was devised long before, you know, it actually became a reality. Much like, I think Adam, you and I have discussed in the past, the fact that the high definition TV standard, the 16 by 9 ratio and the, the resolution and stuff was, was stuff that was actually thought of and thought up as early as the, the early to mid 80s. It's That's just right. at the time, the technology wasn't there to put this into mass production. Right. You know, on any you know sort of scale that would make it viable at the time. There was even early, I mean, there were some early, You at the very end of the film Philadelphia, you can see a very early, which is a 1993 film, you can see an early 16 by 9 cathode ray tube tv playing some old video uh footage on it and there was an attempt you know early on to to push the television standards in that direction but it just a the technology wasn't there there to do it in a a quality that uh, in a cost-efficient way, but B, they simply couldn't get everybody to agree to, to switch this over until there was sort of a, ma- a government mandate that it that it happened. Certainly. So yeah, it's uh, but you know, like you said, it, these are things that people wished for, wanted, but there were things holding us back. There were, in many cases, it's it comes down to money uh, as to why things don't actually come to fruition <laughs> sooner rather than later. I think, I think uh, Marty meeting George in the in the diner, that sequence where Biff's introduced or reintroduced, having seen him as the bully uh, in 1985. It's I mean, it's, it's an iconic scene from from the film, and obviously it's replicated then in two and three. But that moment when Biff comes in and and talks, you know, Shaq to McFly, and Marty's reaction. They, they say that the the bulk of sort of Marty McFly, Michael J. Fox's sort of humor skills are reactionary within the film. And and you've got that shock on his face, which is which is also is, is sort of funny. You just can't believe he's you know he's sat next to his dad. You know his dad is the same. You know his dad is apart from sort of a few grey hairs and a few wrinkles. His dad hasn't changed in that time. He's still being bullied by Biff. And that realization that my, my dad is is kind of the, the the dork that that I thought he was. But it leads then. You know we obviously move on then. He, he, George leaves the leaves the the diner and, and Marty then goes after him looking for him. And then happens upon the tree outside Lorraine's address, <laughs> where George is um, <laughs> the peeping tom. The, the peeping tom. Yeah. I think it was on this this rewatch that I, that it occurred to me. Would we be calling him a peeping tom the, <laughs> these days? Yeah, but you know, it, what was yeah. it, George? Bird watching? <laughs> <laughs> and when when Lorraine's dad says, "Stella, I hit another one of these kids." <laughs> Another one like, of these damn and kids. And he says so matter-of-factly, like, it's just, like, part of, like, his life. He just hits these kids yeah. <laughs> all the time. Guys, all you've got to be thinking, is Lorraine purposely getting changed in her bedroom window right. with the curtains right. open just, you know, to get yeah, some attention? Little, yeah, she likes the, course, the, yeah. the attention, yeah. Like you say, Rich, that 
that whole scene in the diner onwards. The whole second act of Back to the Future, I think, is where the crux of Bob Gale's initial script is is magnified, is intensified. The fact that you've got Marty going back in time and meeting his younger parents and, and all of the things that brings with it. The fact that, you know, if anything, George is even more of a of a dork than, you know, is his, his older self. And, and then the fact that his mother is, is this drastically different person. She hasn't been beaten down by 30 years of... Of, of marriage to someone that she's not happy with yeah. you know she's she's a totally different person and and well she's, you know the life lessons that he's had from her you know the, the the grief that she gives him in 1985 at the very thought of going up to the lake with jennifer she never mm. sat in a parked car with a boy and then to meet this, his mum 30 years later and find out actually she is entirely different there yeah. isn't you know she is she's completely the opposite to, to to what she's portrayed herself to be and I think one of the strongest, you know, aspects of this whole trilogy is Leah Thompson, and certainly in the first film, well, you know, the first and the second film, because you know, as we'll come to later, the way the performance sort of differentiates across time is just phenomenal, and she, she really sort of got into character and, and had a full understanding of of her character and and how to play her so differently across time. Yeah, you could argue that do any of us really change that drastically? God, I think, I'd say certainly we do. You know, thirty years apart, but I think her performance is is definitely one of the strongest elements of an already just incredible cast. Well, when you think, you know, like like we said with George, you know, George is in 1985. He's an exaggerated version of his 1955 character, but he's he's worn down over 30 years. You know, he's he's not been successful. He's his, his marriage to Lorraine is, you know, three children. But it, but they're very. I mean, he seems relatively happy. It's all relative. I mean, he's he's. I think he's kind of accepted, really, isn't he? He's beaten down. He's accepted his lot in life. Whereas Lorraine is is she's not happy. She, you know, <laughs> that's that's just reminding me, right? And, and this 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 will sound bad, but do you know sometimes when you, your wife, you, when you, you your thoughts are elsewhere and your wife is talking to you and she's trying to get your attention, so many times do I have to stop myself from saying what Lorraine. What? <laughs> it's just perfect. His delivery yeah. of that is just, it's just perfect. It really is. <laughs> it is. Yeah, it is. is. And the fact that there's that deleted scene with, um, isn't there someone selling peanut brittle at the door and he like buys, he's bought like a whole yeah. entire case oh, yeah. of it. It's like so I, then I, he's I got... put you down for two cases or something like that. Yeah. But I could never, I could never, when I was a kid, I couldn't understand what it was. It looked like broken up tiles. I, yeah. I, I never understood what it was that he was eating. It looked horrendous. Have you ever tried, I, I've since tried peanut brittle and it is just, it is, is of minimal nutritional value. It's certainly not something you would <laughs> want to eat as a breakfast cereal replacement. Yeah. It's, it's an equal nutritional value as a... Uh, JLB Joey's welcome home cake because that doesn't look particularly yeah. appetizing no. either, does it? And I just love the way she, and again, this is going back in the film, but you know, we're going to go all over the place here. But you know, the way she just sort of walks in, like sort of hangdog faced with a your big glass of vodka in one hand and just yeah. chucks the tree baked cake on, on the yeah. table. It's just perfect. <laughs> and I love that as well. And, and we're going again into, into the callbacks. You, you know, you say about when, when Marty goes into um, Lorraine's house and we're skipping over the sequence, the famous sequence when, when she comes and wakes him up. But when, when he goes down and meets the family and Joey's the baby in, in, in the crib or in the cot, and he says, you know, you better get used to these bars, kid. It's just a kind of, you know, you might have, you might, you might have missed the, the the name. They made reference to him coming out of jail, but you might have missed what the name was. But it's kind of that thing of, it's the depth to it, Rich, isn't it? Yeah, like, it is. Yeah. Like you said, Adam, you you've watched this film again. You've picked out new things. I, I don't know how many times I've seen Back to the Future, but little things I've picked out of you know the, the most recent rewatch yet again. Some of them are little kind of nitpicks of things that don't make sense, but then others are things which I just maybe 
some of them feel like I'd noticed them before and then forgotten about them years ago. Yeah. And then others are things that just think, you know, I haven't actually, I've never looked at it from that point of view. And one of them that we're going to come to later, it, it kind of blew my mind. And I thought, well, and, and, and as I said to you guys, you know, as I said to you, Rich, years ago, there is a little kind of failure in the plot mechanics of Back to the Future 2, which is within the confines of its own sort of logic that he actually yeah. the logic breaks down and even Bob Zemeckis has admitted that he was aware of that at the time but they just go with it but there was another one in the first film that I thought hang on now well if I may as well just get go to on, it. Do it do right, it let's do it <laughs> so and again I can't help but be influenced by the time travel sort of theory that we have recently been introduced to in Avengers Endgame where you look at time travel from the point of view of the person traveling through time so Avengers Endgame's time mechanics make sense if you follow them from the point of view of Captain America and him alone. To go into detail about that could take, you know, 45 minutes to an hour. I'm not even going to do that. Marty McFly travels back in time from 1985. Let's call it 1985A. Not to get confused with the alternate version in a second, but this is 1985A. <laughs> Are you drawing you on a chalkboard at the moment? Or 1985 Prime, as they Prime. Were saying. No, 1985 Prime. So yeah. he goes back in time to 1955. He then changes history ever so slightly. Well, in fact, not ever so slightly. He changes history quite drastically. So when he goes forward in time or back to the future from 1955 to this new 1985, should there be another Marty already there? A Marty that was brought up by well-to-do, affluent, successful parents. Where has that Marty gone? Because we've already seen that his brother and sister are now different people. His sister is successful with boys. She's got a load of potential suitors calling her. Her, her, her brother is, is you know, starting out in the business world. He looks like he's made a success of himself. His mother and father are, you know, drastically different people. They, they, right, this Marty is from a different version of 1985. He's from, as you say, Adam, 1985 Prime. He has travelled via 1955 to this new version we'll call it 1985 alpha there should be an alpha version of marty there a marty that didn't have deadbeat parents where is that marty gone he should be there it's like as if he he technically went back in that right timeline as well we, no we that's the thing that. that's what got but, me thinking but it would have been a di all the events that led up to that should have differed because he hit he may never have become friends with Doc in this mm. reality, right? In this new reality. Yeah. So, yeah, it's it, it's a very I, good. I, yeah. I think that Doc Brown, though, Doc Brown does kind of cover that when they're talking about the ripple effect. So right. he does. Okay, yeah. Because you're using you're using the person who's traveling through time as the point of reference. Yes. So the the one thing that th things change around that point rather than so this is where it's different to the Avengers and up like, until Avengers like Jennifer on the bench you know yeah. Jennifer waking up and everything yeah but yeah but no you've you've look at it from the point of view of Jennifer Jennifer on the bench is older in just in the number of days than the Jennifer that we start off at the beginning of the film it is not the same Jennifer at that time point it, it's an older Jennifer like Marty as we know him at the end of the third film is a few days older than Marty at the beginning of the film. Correct, yeah. Right? So you've got, again, looking at it from the point of view of the traveller, there is that element. You've got to think that there was an Alpha 1985 version of Marty that somehow got replaced by the Prime 1985 version of Marty. So maybe then, likewise, that when the ripple effect takes effect, ripple effect it, yeah, did, takes it, did it erase that? The original. At the point, at, yeah, at the point where Marty came to that 1985, did the ripple effect get rid of the other one? I would say and again, that, this yeah, is so. why, and this is why time travel is just impossible. It, 
it just can't be possible. They it looks like they attempted to answer that sort of in part two in that in the deleted scene where Biff comes back from his trip back mm-hmm. to 1955, and in the deleted scene, he actually disappears. Yeah, um, from existence. Right, he does. He arrives back. Yeah, no, but my understanding of it was that when he went back in time and and changed time and and created that alternate version of 1985, at some point in between. 1985A and 2015. He died. Biff, yeah. Biff was shot and killed by Lorraine. Yeah. Now, again, that's stuff that was omitted from the Back to the Future 2 script, which, because he went back in time and created this alternate timeline, he never lived to be 2015 Biff. Yeah, exactly. So, and again, this is this is why, you know, we, we can't do this. We just can't, we've got to stop doing it because it's just so... It does answer, though, why he's in so much pain as he's getting yeah. out of the DeLorean. You never yeah. really understand why. He's like, oh, oh, even before he hits himself with the cane and breaks yeah. the cane, he seems like he's sweating and in pain. And that that wouldn't mm-hmm. make sense other than the fact that maybe he's feeling the pain of the gunshot wound or something just before he, he's erased from existence. You know, again, we're just speculating here. But, but I think I, I do think that the theory that's set up in the first film where you've got the photo. Um, and, and you've, you've got uh, Marty's photo of his family and you can see obviously Dave slowly disappearing and then Linda slowly disappearing mm-hmm. that sets in, in my mind anyway it always sets in my mind again adhering to that ripple effect that the things that are changing around you and you are that kind of you're that one constant so when Biff was dying I always had I always assumed not having seen the deleted scenes but I always assumed that the reason why he was dying was because he was no longer going to exist I know you fall into paradox and all the rest of it there I accepted that because He's changed history, and and he's and you know he's changed history for the better. So there's no sadness that that old Biff is no longer going to exist because, from his point of view, he's created a whole new life for himself, and there's going to be a far happier. Okay, granted, he probably gets shot in the nineties. Again, Rich, what you've said there at the point where old Biff from 2015, and again we're moving on to the second film already, but <laughs> in order to kind of you know we're talking about the mechanics that flow kind of throughout the whole trilogy. 2015 Biff going back in time to 1985. And created an alternate 1985 at that point. Oh, sorry, 19. He goes back. Sorry, he doesn't know. He goes back to 1955, doesn't he? From that point onwards, as soon as he changes his future, he cannot go back to that 2015 because it no longer exists. But as, that's the ripple effect. Yeah. It, t- it, take, it takes time for that to take effect. So anyway. it starts from the center and it, and it goes out. So they're in that time. That's the ripple. And him disappearing is the end of the ripple. Look. Guys, I think we've got to stop because if we carry on, <laughs> it's, it's like it's like crossing the streams, isn't it? We're going to kind is. of existence as we know it will just kind of end. <laughs> well, I'll just say that there. I, I sent you guys a link, an interesting link of this article about this man who claimed to be uh, a, tr- a, a real time traveler, and he had all this explanation. He had you know incredible information really about how his time machine worked and how time travel really works and how that if you go back in time there's actually this sort of variance so you're always going back in time to an every time you go back mm-hmm. it's a new reality you're, you you yeah. can never run a, you can never go back in time on your own timeline you can never go forward in time on your own timeline in essence you are just like a visitor watching an, a, a, as you go into an alternate reality or alternate alternate timeline and that in that alternate timeline there's always going to be a, a slight variance you know between five and six percent so some little differences might be there right there might be slight variations this is sort of the multiverse concept you know that any little change in that version of reality could have had ripple effects you know into the future that actually makes more sense and that you can never essentially return to your own time unless you go back 
you basically have to retrace your steps to go back to your time. But anything you do in those past times will never affect your current pr present that you left from, that those changes will only affect alternate realities, alternate yeah. timelines. So Yeah, because you've already left behind that time exactly. you came from. Yeah. Yeah, so that makes sense logically, but the films yeah. certainly don't adhere to that logic because it wouldn't be fun, right, if you couldn't change your future. And the same goes for Back to the Future Part 2. If these events haven't occurred yet, just the fact that Marty and Jennifer get in the DeLorean with Doc at the end of the first film should have changed any possible outcome that would have happened in the future. So, but these are just, you know, again, then the film wouldn't be very interesting. <laughs> and, uh, but this is the thing, isn't it? The, the type of film that it is attracts fans like us, the, the, the sort of fans that pour over the details, pour over the details. The, the, the flip side of that is because of how, because of the quality of each of the films, the quality of the writing, the quality of the cast, all of the things that we're waxing lyrical about constantly, those little nitpicks, those little those little kind of um, areas that, that when you scrutinize too closely, perhaps they don't hold up as well, they don't matter. Because yeah. you are completely along for the ride and you just accept that they work for the purpose of Back to the Future up to Back to the Future Part 3. It, it just is. Yeah, and I think, Rich, if, if Galen Zemeckis had leaned too heavily into the sort of science fiction mechanics behind it, it would have moved away from the, you know, the comedy elements, from the, the, the more dramatic elements. Absolutely. And, and sort of got itself bogged down in science fiction, you know, techno babble. But then, you know, going back to how they sort of walked the knife edge so many times, we've talked about how kind of risque that script was with the fact that you've got a young woman who's effectively got the hearts for her future son, her unborn son, which is, is, there's that one scene which completely saves it, which if you think if they hadn't lent into that so hard and if it hadn't had been, you know, done in that way, the whole thing could have come crashing down is when later on in the film, Marty and Lorraine are sat in the car outside the Enchantment Under the Sea dance. Yeah. They kiss and instantly there's that wide-eyed look from Lorraine. Yeah. Something is wrong. And she pulls back and she just says, it just feels wrong. It, it feels like kissing my brother. And it's at yeah. that point there where all the other sort of uncomfortable elements and even looking back at it now, 35 years later, it completely resolves itself because it's handled so well. But is it uncomfortable? Is it? I mean, is it because we grew up with it? It, it is like it, it's funny, isn't it? It is. But it's Leah Thompson always said, didn't she? Leah Thompson felt that I, I thought it was hilarious. She says. Yeah, but I think every who doesn't think you know. I mean, if you, if you don't like these films, you don't like these films. That's fair enough. I mean, you're wrong. But if you don't like them, you don't like them. But Rich, but, I think it's the same sort of mentality of people who look at that innocent kiss in the Empire Strikes Back between Luke and Leia. That's what I was coming to. That's exactly it, it, it's innocent. To. From the it point is. of view of Princess Leia, she has no idea Luke Skywalker is her brother. Even no. at that point, there's an argument that George Lucas might not have even finally made a decision as to the yeah. fact that they were going to be... Because even in that film, all we're told is, no, there is another. We're not yeah. actually told until three years later that Princess Leia and Luke Skywalker, brother and sister. And, you know, again, it's done completely innocently. She's doing it to show Han Solo what a dick he's being. Yeah. People say, oh, yeah, you, you look at that now. And he said, oh, does George Lucas wish now that he hadn't actually put that kiss in? It's just, like, it's all innocent. It's, you know, none of it is, is meant to be anything other than... It's humorous. It's, 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 yeah. you know, it, it's, wasn't, it, it wasn't a romantic kiss either, if, in my opinion. It was a very aggressive, like, like take this. And she, like, grabs yeah. him by the face and kisses him. You know, sh she was not doing it out of any interest in Luke. She was doing it to rile up Han, you know, yeah. to get yeah. him angry. Maybe Luke, Luke's reaction was a little off because he's kind of like <laughs> all proud of himself. Again, it's uh, it's innocent. Uh, let, let's just talk briefly about our last act, 
You know, yeah. you've got the enchantment under the sea dance. You've got the whole build up to George finally getting the balls to to deck Biff, and then you've got Earth Angel. That well, yeah. just going back to the him decking Biff, that still gives me goosebumps now. Yeah. I I love that punch is phenomenal. It is. It is. I, I, and, 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 and you know, music, and, and I love getting to see it yeah, the yeah. whole the whole when when she when he looks down at her and takes her hand and she the way the camera pant pulls yeah. up with her face as she looks at him, it's like at that yeah. moment she sees him in a whole new light and we all get it. We all see that, you know, that connection. It's just amazing. So I was going to say earlier that between the three sequences that for me sort of stand out for this film are that, that, uh, that chase sequence I mentioned earlier, mm-hmm. that sequence where she, Biff is holding his arm back and, and he, he punches Biff and then lifts, lifts her up off the ground. And then of course the very last sequence where he says roads, you know, where we're going, we don't need roads. The, yeah. Those three, I think are sort of the, the scenes that, for me at least, will will forever embody that first film. But that as you're going into the dance, then, and we've got you know obviously you hope and, and George has that little wobble, doesn't he? Because because the the other bully that that this is something that I noticed for the first time on on this possibly my 85th watch was um was the the bully that that was kicking him when 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 uh, Doc and Marty are first in in high school. Doc says, "Which one's your pop?" and and he's getting he's got the kick me sign on the back. One of the, the the guy with the ginger hair is the guy who comes up and push and and cuts in uh, to dance with the rain because there's a deleted sequence where that I think there's it's, it's longer where you realise that George is being bullied by more than one person and and he is one of those people. It was one of those things that kind of previously had, had stuck out slightly. Who is this this guy? Just this random this this random person who approaches them and and sort of steps into the into dance with the rain. There there is that little bit of history there. But of course, he has that wobble. He has that yep. wobble, doesn't he? And then he stands up to him too. You yeah, know, he stands it's up to like, him too. You, you mentioned that ginger guy then who uh, George pushes away. Going back then to previous episode we did with John Cribbs. Do you know who that guy is, the ginger guy? Oh, you, you're going to surprise me now. It's Hans Klopek from The Burbs. Never. Yeah, it's the guy. <laughs> it came with the frame. It's him. <laughs> Yeah, Courtney Gaines. Of course. Right, and wow. okay then, here's a little bit of trivia for you then, Adam. The two stone cats that we see on the Hill Valley Clock Tower, uh, you know, the one that in the in the lightning strike, Doc sees it and is, is terrified. They'd been used in a film three years previously. Do you know what that film is? Uh, I'm trying to remember. I do know. I remember remember reading about this, but it's I'm blanking on it at the moment. It's Paul Schrader's Cat People. With That's Malcolm right. McDowell yes. and Natasha Kinski from 1982, right. apparently the yeah. same two stone cats appear in Back to the Future. A, a, a little shout out to Doc's reaction there, because again, that 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 scream that when going back to what you said at the beginning, Adam, about the the, the film working so well with families. There's the sequence when Doc recreates the the, the Hill Valley in order to. Um, you know the crude representation uh, yeah, that he didn't have I time to that. paint that sequence whenever if I wasn't watching if my parents weren't watching the film with me when I was younger I lived in a small house you could hear the television from the kitchen my mum would come in would always come in for that bit where the car comes off the ramp it uh, comes off the, the the table and goes towards the bin and catches fire and Doc's scream or, yeah. or, or shriek uh, as he does that yeah that yeah floors my mum every single time and and even now even to this day it, funnily enough the last time around christmas time when they when they were here back to the future was on and again she was busy with my with my children and she stopped to watch that bit it, it's just his screen so uh, he's fantastic it is. It is. 
I, I love and I love that line where it just shows his perfectionism when he says, I, I apologize for the crudeness of this model. I didn't have time <laughs> yeah. to paint it or build a scale. You know? yeah. <laughs> like yeah. and then and then Marty's reaction as he looks at it, it's like, Are you kidding me? This is amazing. Like yeah. he did so much more than he ever <laughs> needed to do. <laughs> Completely <laughs> to yeah. illustrate. I mean, he didn't need to build any of those other buildings. You know? yeah, he didn't, he didn't <laughs> need, there, yeah, he, there were streets coming off it, weren't there? It was, yeah, it was brilliant. There was, he did, built the entire square. He, all he had to build was the <laughs> clock tower and the street to which yeah. was connecting to it. And he, uh, it just, but again, that's Doc's character and it, it, it comes through so well. And, and yeah, there are so, Doc's, yeah, Doc is just such a brilliant interpretation. I think they discussed this in a lot of the interviews with him that he sort of used Leopold Stokowski and um, and what I, Einstein sort of a blend of the two yeah. uh, as his sort of inspiration, like with their hair and uh, and sort of mannerisms, sort of, uh, and also that from a direction standpoint, Bob Zemeckis sort of had because of their height difference between Marty and Doc. He had Doc sort of sort of hunched down a lot and kind of like bend his knees a lot as he's and as he's sort of being very animated so that they could be in the same frame composition more easily. So Doc is never really standing upright. He's always kind of bending over or his knees are bent. And it's something again, once you see that, once you know that, you watch the film and you kind of notice his sort of blocking and how he's performing the character much more closely. And it's interesting. It's going back going back to the dancer. So we've got Earth Angel, as you said. There's we go into Johnny, be good, don't we? It's, it's the, obviously after George has kind of finally kissed Lorraine and and everything, you know, is everything's perfect. Bar getting back, we have we have that iconic sequence of of um, Marty playing Johnny, be good, and that you know I, I can't play it now, but that sequence every single time, I just wish I could play the guitar. Okay, <laughs> fellas, this is a blues riff in B. Watch uh, <laughs> the changes, the changes and, and try to keep up. <laughs> And, and it's remarkable that that very first shot where you see Marty's hands on the guitar, it pans right up to, you know, you, you yeah. see right away he's doing it. He's yeah. finger syncing every single chord of that song. And that's a brilliant shot because otherwise you, you would expect or you would assume that it was just some double doing the performing. Yeah. But no, it was him. Obviously, it wasn't his voice singing the song. That's pretty apparent. But... Uh, he's really doing a pretty good job, uh, and and he's admitted that he's a, uh, you know, that Michael J. Fox was a, did play guitar. He was nothing. He wasn't proficient, but he certainly knew his way around the basic. You know, just needed. He had, I think, a friend of his sort of coaching him throughout the film to ensure that he looked authentic in his performance. Yeah, well, his, his friend was, was a, a co- uh, the bass guitarist in the Pinheads, wasn't he? Yeah. He was, he was, yeah. That was the coach, yeah. That's right, and, yeah. And, you know, b- you know, before we move on, one of the bits, you know, towards the end of Back to the Future, there's always guessing when it's going back to Alan Silvestri's music, is when Marty hugs Doc before leaving 1955. That's and a choker. That is a choker of a, a moment. And it, it got me this time on, on your rewatching it. It really got me. As, as Joe Dante has said, films don't change, we change. It, it just it always never ceases to amaze me about like, some of the reactions I get. You know, I had a, like I said to you um, earlier on, Rich, I had a pretty intense reaction towards the end of our Joe's commentary yeah. uh, last week. And, and it was to do with you know, memories that I've since built up in relation to Joe's, my son, and, and a piece of music from that film. And it's changed now, my viewing experience of Jaws. I'm not going to be able to get away from that memory that I've now got. And, and it's just that bit of seeing Doc, you know, hugging you know, his sort of mad scientist best friend, as it were. It, it just got to me more than it ever has before. And, and again, I think Sylvester, he really, you know, he knows what he's doing. And he's, he's, 
he's just tugging at your heartstrings with the music because we know the fact that from Marty's point of view he's never going to see Doc again because he thinks that Doc is yeah, going to die you know the, yeah. the Libyans are, are going to yeah. or have killed him but I think as well it's, it's, you go back to, that, to the music I think that where it, it does elevate it in so many areas and I think that part of the reason why these films in my opinion don't age um, is because they're very much 1985 1955 you know even even 2015 i still you know i know that we're 5 years later and it isn't like that but if it, if the music was primarily 80s music synthesizer music the, the the film would have aged an awful lot but the fact that you've got this orchestral score that is so grand and is tweaked for the different eras that they're in mm, and yeah. none none more so than than back to the future 3 the the spin that they they put on that for the for the old west is uh, is phenomenal but it, it, it what it does it, it it stops those films from aging it, it, it really does yeah it's a timeless score really it is, is. We, we've talked now for well over an hour and a half about the first film. And obviously, you know, as you said, it was a huge critical and commercial success. It, it was the highest grossing film of 1985 to this day. You know, it, it's a favourite of ours. It's, a, it's, a, it's far more than a cult classic. It is an outright classic film. And, you know, as you know, in Hollywood, success always begets a sequel. And in this case, it gave us two sequels. But before we uh, move on to the third film, we have got what... Famous astronomer Carl Sagan said was the greatest film ever made about time travel, Back to the Future Part 2 from So, but before we move full on talking about the sequel, guys, it, it ties into that ending of the original film. Now, it's well known that Zemeckis and Gale had no intention of making a sequel when they wrote the first film, and the ending yeah. was supposed to be like one last gag, yeah. which they later admitted that if the sequels had been planned from the off, that they would never have had Doc and Marty taking Jennifer with them into 2015, no. which accounts for the fact that then in the second film, she spends much of the, the first 2015 act of Back to the Future 2 unconscious. It effectively gets written out of the film because her being in the future would cause 
you know, various problems and also the fact that you know this isn't really jennifer's story this is marty's story and to have yeah. a, you know another set of eyes unfamiliar with time travel it's just going to be kind of retreading too much of certain elements from the first film that sort of wide-eyed awe of time travel which we we always i think is really important that we always see it from marty's point of view but what do we think guys of the recasting of elizabeth shoe as jennifer this is where I'm going to be uh, sort of, th- th- this is one of my more negatives mm-hmm. because I think you can't say that we explore the character of Jennifer really at all in Back to the Future. However, the sequence when, the, the, where, they, where, they, where they redo the opening, uh, the, the end of Back to the Future is, is, is fine. But there's a little bit, there's a little bit in, in the DeLorean when she becomes very excited about the fact that she's going to see their wedding. And it kind of, even though we don't really know anything about Jennifer, really, that seemed a little bit at odds with the little that we do know. Because it seemed to be kind of a bit stereotypical, the girl just wants to get married kind of thing. And, yeah. and whereas my view of Jennifer from the first film was that she was kind of, she was a bit more in control uh, and she was kind of, Marty was sort of pining for her and she was, you know, giving him a telephone number to go to, to speak to him over the, speak to him over the weekend or what have you. Yeah. It just seemed that they kind of, they, they went a little bit kind of stereotypical girl can't wait to get married w- w- with her. And it's Elizabeth Shue. She's, she's kind of, she's iconic in herself, isn't she? And, and it, she doesn't look quite right with the wig. There's something slightly off. It works as it goes on, in my opinion. And, and you, you very quickly accept her. But I think that perhaps had they not redone that, that sequence, maybe. Yeah. I, I'm not sure. It, it, there's something slightly off with it. You know, yeah. maybe it's just me. Yeah, Claudia Wells, she was just absolutely perfect in the first film as Jennifer and like you say Rich she was um, yeah she she was kind of like the firm rock to Marty and you know I would love to have seen if they carried on that version of Jennifer because I think you know that first act there's no escaping it Bob Gale and Bob Zemeckis when they were trying to predict a future 2015 they thought we're not going to get much of this right so let's just sort of lean into the comedy elements of it and just run with it and, and basically you know have a laugh well, um, well, optimistic. Not you know, it is comedy. Yeah, it's optimistic. optimistic yeah, yeah. Not, yeah. Not beat and optimistic, but sort of exaggerated. Yeah, you know, because the future is predicted there. Like, we're never going to have flying cars. You know, it, it's the, the whole concept of cars flying is just ludicrous. Why would yeah. you? And why would you have sky lanes? That, that, that you know, there's there's so many things in it which are just nonsensical. But <laughs> my God, if the you know for the for the longest time that opening act of Back to the Future Two was my favorite part of the trilogy. It was a kid growing up. I was just completely in awe of it. Knowing full well that most of that stuff wouldn't come to light. It was always playing on my hopes that, yeah, you know, hopefully one day in my lifetime we'll have flying cars, we'll have hoverboards. Yeah. There's so much about that first act that's great. But on my rewatching it recently, it is kind of wacky and there's a lot of wacky humour. And I think that Galen Zemeckis made Jennifer the sort of vessel for a little bit too much of that humour. Yeah. The other thing as well is, is, is Michael J. Fox playing his daughter. Yeah, you know, it didn't and need it was, to be done. It didn't, it didn't need, need to be, to be done. done. Why, 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 why is it not Jan? You know, why, why is it not Elizabeth Shue? And I think was. Do you think that was maybe a bit of bravado on their part because they would, you know, this cutting edge motion control technology. It's like this was before CGI. There's, there's virtually no CGI in Back to the Future Two. It is all optical effect shots. Even seeing now what they were doing back in 1988, 1989, where they would lock that camera in and they would do a pass of Michael yeah. J. Fox dressed up as old Marty. Mm. And then they would basically cut a matte shape out of that and, and have that portion of the kitchen with him stood there in, like, say, the bottom right corner. Then they'd have him as, oh, what was the name of his daughter? Marlene. Marlene. They would have Michael J. Fox as Marlene in the, the maybe the, the right of centre at the table. That would be a separate mat. 
and then you would have him as his younger son on the left. And the way that those three elements are stitched together is just, you know, for 1989, thinking of the amount of work that would have to go into it, it was absolutely staggering. Something that would be done so easily now with computer-generated effects. But I think maybe because of the fact that they were so impressed with what they could do or what they thought they could do in, you know, early stages of developing the script maybe they thought yeah you know wouldn't it be a cool idea because we're leaning so much into the humor and maybe the more silly elements of where we're taking this film maybe they thought you know having michael j fox play three characters on screen would be great why not make one of them his daughter just for comic effect but yeah, yeah it didn't need to be done i do think that that they kind of boxed themselves into a corner with the end of back to the future and it's very much for me it's it's a it's a bit of fun it's a bit of what if a bit of a bit of kind of a bit more comedy but the whole purpose of it is just to get us back to 1955. So it's a kind of, it's a little bit of a dabble with that, you know, the, the film was never all going to be set in the future. It was just a kind of a fun yeah. half hour just to get us back because the, the, the meat of the film, I mean, the, the iconography of Back to the Future 2 is the hoverboard, is the future stuff. Yeah, yeah, it is, yeah. But actually the, 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 the meat of the film hmm. is in 1955. Because yeah, and, not an in alternate fact, 1985. Nothing, yeah, yeah, nothing really of consequence really occurs in the future other than him obtaining the hoverboard, which plays a role in the yeah, final I'm, film. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, but beyond that, really, it's all just, as you said, a way to get them back and to get out of the circumstances that the first film sort of unfortunately had written them into. Yeah, <laughs> so yeah. once they and, and in a way, maybe that's why they chose to do this. Maybe because they knew they had to have this 30-minute sort of detour in the future mm-hmm. yeah. they decide let's just have fun with it let's yeah. just go crazy and because after that it actually gets pretty dark right once you get to the alternate 85 and even yeah. back to 1955 it's pretty intense and you're kind of nervous that things are not going to go well for these characters and even the very ending when doc gets you know incinerated in quotes you know until he gets the letter it you think this is you know this is as they say this is the the dark second chapter of a trilogy and that first act though in the future is sort of the that element of levity that the film so it kind of crams it all into that first act (laughs) and then after that you kind of lose the comic uh, the comic elements to a, to a large degree. There are some moments that are funny, but like with Biff and stuff. But I think the uh, the first act is re- really where most of the humor comes yeah. in. And obviously, as I said, guys, it's it's difficult to talk about the beginning of Back to the Future Part Two without talking about the ending of the first one. Because let's go back to that ending of the first one, yeah. Yeah. Because for budgetary reasons, Marty gets dropped off by Doc to his house. Uh, then we see just off screen the DeLorean traveling, you know, as we're told, into the future. No sooner has Marty found out he's altered the the future and whatever, you know, he goes outside, finds out that he's got the four by four that he always dreamt of having. Jennifer comes back into the film. And then we've got Doc coming from the future in this now souped up and modified DeLorean. And we've got one of the all-time great endings to a film. Yes, it's done like a gag. But then that obviously bleeds then into the opening of the second film. Now, of the three films, you've got that quiet opening to the first film, which is a lot of setup. Uh, you've got the ticking clocks. It's mm-hmm. not. There's no bombast. There's no music. Well, no, no, there isn't any. You know, there, there is no score as such. There's nothing. That, no, nothing in that opening. Yeah. You jump forward then to the third film. We have a recap of the ending of the second film, but then the, the opening proper is in 1955 at Doc Brown's house after, because yeah. obviously the events we see at the beginning of the third film are the tail end of the second film. Yeah. So, you know, the film starts proper in 1955 with an unconscious Doc waking up in his house. It's a, yeah. it's a quiet, subdued... Melancholy, yeah. Melancholy. Now, this got me thinking about 
great opening scenes to a film. You look at the Lord of the Rings trilogy. The first film opens with this huge piece of setup. When have we ever been given so much exposition about a world than in the mm. opening to that film? A, a lot of atmosphere, a lot of setup. No kind of, not much in the way of bombast and, and sort of you know explosive excitement as such, but there's a lot of setup there. Go on then into the third film. And the third film is, is kind of a very quiet opening because you've got the origin of Gollum completely took you by surprise you thought well, well that's given yeah, how the yeah. second film ended this is kind of like a quiet unexpected beginning to a film look at the second film and how that opens and for me the two towers has got the greatest opening to any film ever the fact that they had the balls to go back to a scene midway through the first film show it from a different perspective and to show Gandalf falling you know, into this endless chasm battling the Balrog one of those yeah. incredible openings to any film and it will always remain one of my favourites one of my favourite openings to any film you know maybe a bit further down that table of favorite openings would be the opening to Back to the Future Part Two because that features the single greatest piece of Sylvester score I've ever heard. You've got that footage of you know the DeLorean flying through the clouds, you know, at daylight, and then we drop down into you know below the clouds where it's rainy, and we've got the bit on the Skyway. Just the, the, the pacing of the film from start to finish, it doesn't let you breathe. It doesn't let you catch your breath, and it's it's throwing so much plot at you. Back to the Future Two, it just blows people's minds because it's so complex i know it puts a lot of people off but from the opening to the end the pacing of the film is just incredible but is it is it so complex though is it is it it, or is it a myth that it's so complex no i think i we we are not normal people in that regard (laughs) you me and adam right if we've just had a 10 minute conversation about the problems with the time temporal mechanics of the back to the future films we are the geeks we are the nerds we are the ones that you know have clearly given us way too much thought I've always like like Doc Brown's explanation like, yeah, whatever yeah, flows I know, are. I know I know it does but again this moves on now to the problem which Zemeckis later yeah, yeah. did with Back to the Future Part 2 Einstein in the first film he travels from 121 to 122 so from one is it is, it, is that is that right Adam or I got one, that right well, I thought maybe it was 120 to 121 yeah, yeah. To so he travels yeah. Yeah. Einstein obviously the dog is the first creature whatever to to travel through time if you don't count the DeLorean itself which also becomes a character in the films so Einstein travels from 1.20am to 1.21 so from 1.20 to 1.21 for that period of 59 seconds as it were he doesn't exist he's not there because he skipped over that one minute of time yeah so by the same reckoning if Marty and Jennifer leave 1985 and travel to 2015 for a period of 30 years they have ceased to exist because they left 1985 and then immediately reappeared as teenagers in 2015 therein they would never be able to meet their older selves obviously Zemeckis said yeah you know we are aware of that but we thought ah to hell with it you know otherwise the whole the whole film just doesn't work Mm -hmm. so you can't you know again you can't think think of it in those terms the only thing I I was trying to figure this out and think about this more and the only thing I can think of is the difference between Einstein is that Einstein stayed in the future Right. The one he never went back to his starting point, whereas in theory, Marty and Jennifer and Doc returned to starting point, thus fulfilling the original timeline. So in again, it's still it's a little wonky, but it's it's the ripple effect. It's the ripple effect. Yeah, (laughs) they do because they they are going to return because they are, you know, that's Einstein. Yeah. Einstein, essentially, it's like if Doc went to 2015 and never returned. So, yes, he never existed between 1985 and 2015 because he chose to stay in the future so einstein essentially stayed one minute in the future forever 
Right, I did. I did have grand plans when I was planning this episode <laughs> of of having much like we did in the Transformers episode, where John Arminio put mine and Bill Scurry's knowledge of Transformers through their paces with a quiz. I did have plans <laughs> to hit you guys with a quiz um, at the end, but I didn't get around to it. Obviously, you've just had a trivia question each now. This one's going to be fastest finger first. What is the name of the device that Doc uses to put Jennifer asleep at the beginning of Back to Future Part Two? Some kind of neural. It wasn't not a neuralizer. A um. Something induced sleep inducer. Go on, you need to add them. Is that right? It's a sleep inducing alpha rhythm generator. Oh, there we go. Okay. The only reason I know is because <laughs> having had three children, Adam, the amount of times I thought, God, if I only had one of them just oh, to put yeah. my children asleep. I was, I was telling Rich just last night, my daughter woke up at two and stayed awake, fully awake until 4 a.m. So <sighs> I was walking around our apartment, talking to me, telling me stories. <laughs> to, it was like I had a a wide awake child, uh, middle of the day for about two hours in the middle of the <laughs> night. So I could definitely have used one last night. Oh, definitely, yeah. definitely. Uh, so Back to the Future Two, guys. Yes. So they insert that scene, don't they? That, that did you ever find that jarring that the Biff scene was in uh, inserted with the obviously it was clearly there to set up the matchbook box, wasn't it? But it um just as just as they fly off into the future, flying DeLorean. What the hell is going on? No, yeah, because yeah. I I think it's perfect and it works perfectly with the tone of when those Back to the Future titles come up. Yeah. It's done in a way that is kind of a forewarning and it's kind of ominous as opposed yeah. to, it, it kind of gives like an ominous tinge to what would otherwise be a completely sort of exciting and, and yeah. positive sort of thing. It's like, what the hell is going on? Yeah, I never thought I never thought that they chucked a scene in. I just thought that it, that had always happened, but we just hadn't seen it in the first film. You, well, you know? Yeah, exactly. And, and it always raised the question, like, why would Doc be so careless as to travel back, A, levitate his hover converted yeah. car right in a busy suburban street and b have it basically disappear and explode in the sky above yeah. so many people well it's like very careless if you think about it if he's trying to keep his invention a secret yeah my mm-hmm. wife said to me when when i back to the future to one on the weekend she said um why, why why are they going back now they don't have to go back now. <laughs> they're, they're in a time machine. They can go back That's later. True. Why is he in such a hurry? They have yeah. all the time you need, as they say. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But uh, I, I, I sent her out. Yeah. Did you remember, the? did you have the version of the end of, of Back to the Future that had him saying, what happens to us in the future? Do we turn into jerks? No, it, to me it was always assholes. See, when I the first time that I saw Back to the Future two, I, I, I that that was what stuck out to me. He's saying assholes in in re- researching this on on one of the extras on the set. It does show that it was a filmed TV sequence. Uh, the, the, the scene was filmed for TV, where he says jerks. But in the UK, they dubbed it. Wow. So there was an, in in existence. There is there is there is Michael J. Fox saying, "Do we turn into jerks?" But for some reason, the UK broadcast version had a dubbed. Ver- jerks over him mouthing assholes i think also a lot had happened at least in the u.s um with the rating system uh between 1985 and 1989 they obviously the pg-13 rating system came into effect and they uh, they wanted to keep these films pg across the board so i think they were probably looking for ways to to ensure that they they stayed family friendly yeah. even though even though the first film if the, the PG-13 rating existed here in 85 would definitely have been rated PG-13 it's mm-hmm. it, there's enough cursing i mean just seri- see some serious shit i mean like yeah. th- if that was made today they would not have had doc brown say that for let's see if you, let's, let's see if you bastards can do 90 exactly yeah so much and, and and just in general as we've discussed sort of the incestuous elements to the film there's a lot to it 
it that would probably push it beyond PG. Yeah. PG was definitely a very different rating in the early to mid eighties, uh, as we've you know discussed before, yeah. than it was uh, afterwards. Now, pretty much in the United States, if a movie's PG, it's a kids' movie. Right, guys. Trivia question number four, and again, this is going to be first one to answer. Right. As I've said, I love that opening to Back to the Future 2 with the titles and, and you know, Alan Silvestri's music. But the actual footage we're seeing of a flight through the clouds is taken from, much like the cats uh, in the in the previous film, is taken from which 1982 film? It's it's, it's off-cut of footage from that film. Oh. Bear in mind, we're flying through clouds at high speed. I'll give you a clue. Clint Eastwood. Clint Eastwood. Well, that would certainly be a nice uh, coincidence to uh, the fact that he becomes Clint Eastwood. It's actually Firefox. Firefox. Oh, very mm-hmm. good one. Yeah. Ah, I like that. I love it that when we pull off the Skyway and we see that floating Hill Valley sign, this is something I never really paid much attention to before until watching it re- recently. When Marty goes back to 1955 in the first film and he sees there's a sign stood kind of like on the lawn in that sort of square outside the clock tower. Yeah. And yeah. the sign that we see in the Skyway is exactly, the, oh, not exactly yeah. the same, but it's got the same sort of welcome to Hill Valley, a nice place to live or whatever, as we see that sign from 1955. Yeah, It's a little call back to that that he never really picked up on. Do we there, think that Red, the the vagrant, is Red Thomas, the mayor? But he makes, oh, yeah. Oh, th- th- there's the guy that, that's running for mayor, and then obviously yeah. Goldie Wilson later becomes the mayor. Yeah. I but don't the, know. But, but Red, yeah, but the, in 1955, isn't it, Red, Red Thomas is, wrote, you know, re-elect Mayor Red yeah. Thomas, progress has been lame. And then when Marty comes back to 1985, at the end of the first film, Red, he, he calls yeah. him Red. He says, he says, mm. Red. You know, he's, he's uncredited. I'm going to say no, and the only reason is that on one of the little making-of documentaries I watched in prep for this, you actually see a close-up of the flyer, and the guy in the photograph in the flyer is 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 quite old in 1955, so by yeah, that reckoning, he wouldn't be alive in 1985. Yeah. yeah. No, it's a good it's a good point, though. Yeah, I yeah. never really noticed that before. Well, what, a couple things I noticed, at least in the uh, in this most recent viewing, as I as I said before, I, I paid attention to the background more and to like fine print on newspapers and things, and I did notice that. And a few things they did not get correct in the uh, in the news in the newspapers is there's a, a listing that says president says she's tired of reporters making the same questions. So they were implying that the president was mm-hmm. a woman. So that didn't happen. Yeah. Um, they also said they also mentioned Queen Diana, Queen which Diana, yeah. they would not mm-hmm. uh, have ever known she would have died at that point. And then uh, when Marty, when Lorraine, Marty's mom, is uh, flipping through the channels on the window, sh- there's one screen that shows uh, the Twin Towers of New York City. So uh, another one where they would not have known. It's just right. for a split second, but yeah. uh, they would never have known that those, uh, you know, would not be around uh, yeah. in 2015. So these are obviously things that they could never have predicted. It's just interesting to see that they took the time again to to. Oh, and then in the in the 19 the alternate 1985, when it says Emmett Brown committed on the newspaper, it says Nixon to seek fifth term. That, and vows to end the war in Vietnam by 1985. So it implies. Yeah, but I think by, by that point. Yeah. Because we're in an alternate, it's like it's like the Watchmen of 1985, right? Where, where Nixon has got his fourth term, I think, mm. in Watchmen. I think yeah. basically it's a nod to that, the fact that because 
history has been changed from the late 50s onwards that the 1985 that we're now in Nixon obviously was never shamed never stood down after Watergate and obviously was re-elected because America has become a far more immoral place all due they, to Biff Tannen really all due, yeah, all, due, yeah. all due to Biff Tannen who you, you can't get away from the fact that he does look very much like Donald Trump <laughs> In the, 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 the alternate 1985 version, the similarities are eerie. And there are countless videos out there that will go into detail about the things which Back to the Future Part 2 got right. There's some videos which you could argue are more in conspiracy theory territory. You mentioned about the Twin Towers. There is one video I saw a few years back in particular. It's actually really scary, a lot of the stuff in that one scene mm. where we see in the McFly household in the future. There's a load of stuff that someone has linked to the Twin Towers. And a lot of you think, well, it's actually there. And it's a little bit, it's clearly just coincidence. But it but gives it's, it gives you pause. It gives right? you it certainly yeah, gives yeah. you pause to thought, yeah. and you know, obviously, then you're going to go and write it off as just coincidence, unless you actually do believe in time travel and or the ability to predict the future. But yeah, <laughs> yeah. there's so many things it got right. It's like the cafe eighties. It's our, our reverence in the future now for all things 80s related. We're there. We've been there. We had Stranger yeah. Things. Stranger yeah. Things was the biggest love letter to everything 80s related. Yeah, everything. And, and as I was saying before, how uh, historically there was a nostalgia for the 50s in the 80s. There now yeah, sure. is nostalgia for the 80s in the in the yeah. 2010s. You know, yeah, teens, it's, you know you it's all cyclical. Yeah, is, is, and I think it is, isn't it? Because, you know, we're coming off the, you know, 10 years ago, back in my sort of clubbing and pubbing and things like that. You know, there was seventies music seemed to be there was a big revival of seventies music and seventies interest, and I think it is that it is that thirty year. There seemed to yeah. be a thirty year cyclical or cyclical kind of nostalgia. Here's another one for you. Right. Okay. Let me take let me take you back in time to oh, I don't know maybe about eight hours ago. <laughs> right, my wife and I are going out this afternoon with our children and a friend of my eldest taking them down the beach. On the way, I've got to pop into our local little supermarket to pick up some things. As I left the car, I said, I haven't got my wallet. I've left it in the house. She said, don't worry, use your phone. I've never actually used my phone to pay any for anything with Apple Pay. But oh, yeah. I went in there, scanned the stuff through the, the checkout, put my phone up against it, and I had to press my thumb onto my phone, didn't I? Mm. To, to recognize yeah. the thumbprint. Thumb me a hundred bucks to help save the clock tower. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Paying for things with your thumbprint anticipated Apple's thumbprint scanner on the iPhone and Apple Pay. That's true. And the old man who's asking Marty for a donation, played by Charles Fleischer, is, as you pointed out the other day, Rich, the same character who we later see in 1955 in the same film, working at the garage where Biff got his car cleaned after the manure incident. Terry. Yeah, Terry. Terry yeah. Paying for things with your thumb. We're doing yeah, yeah. it now. You know? Reverence yeah. for the 80s. Do we need shoes that lace themselves up? Do we need a jacket that is like one size fits all and dries itself? I'd argue that we do need clothes that dry themselves. That would be absolutely great. <laughs> all of that is kind of done, you know, for fun. There's yeah. a, the, the billboard sign that says surfing Vietnam, which yeah. again, at the time would never have. We, you know, it's just, this was ten years after the war uh, sure. in the United, in you know, in the U.S. And to, but now people do travel to Vietnam to surf. You know, yeah. it's mm-hmm. uh, it's crazy. Yeah. So there are these odd happy accidents, as you mentioned earlier, that that occurred, and then there are plenty of things that I think they just were having fun with the idea. I think hoverboards were certainly one of them, but uh, without a doubt, it became one of the most iconic takeaways from these this trilogy is that hoverboard. Yeah. Everyone, every kid wanted a hoverboard. And I, I think, uh, I'm sure everyone listening knows, but uh, there was an, 
an old interview that Robert Zemeckis gave where he actually mentions that they were a real thing, but parents yeah. organizations, parents groups basically banned them and made sure that they were never available for children to purchase because they were too dangerous. And that made a lot of kids think they were real. <laughs> and mm, they absolutely. wanted to get it their did. hands on one. It really so, did. It's actually prompted people who've got a scientific leaning who are fans of Back to the Future to actually develop this maglev technology. Yeah. And it's it's working now. They really yeah. have a prototype uh, based on the maglev trains uh, yeah. that are, are in Japan, in China, I think. Is that isn't the bullet train a maglev train? I think so. Yeah. yeah. So you know, there's on the you know the, the back in time documentary it shows that couple who have developed this you know maglev technology and yeah. it, it's in the form of a board that you can stand on. So and you know they're huge Back to the Future fans. It's a hoverboard. Yeah. So the film and, and people should watch that if they haven't seen Back in Time. It's mm. uh, in, he at least here it's available on Hulu to mm. stream. I think you can find it. Probably on YouTube as well. Yeah, it's, it's on. Yeah, it's on YouTube. Yeah, yeah. it's it's got um, burned in subtitles, but it's still, you know, yeah. it's it's completely watchable and it's in. I think it's in seven twenty. So yeah, it's it's great. And you know, I don't usually like those behind the scenes documentaries that show things from the fan perspective, but there's a few moments in that that genuinely got me choked up. Yeah. Really Agreed. Yeah. It's a little long. I think after the first third is sort of a, mm-hmm. a making of, and then after that, it really focuses on the fan appreciation for the film. Yeah. And some of it, as you mentioned, is a little. It, it could have been cut down to an hour. Yeah. I feel like the whole thing. But it does show you. It shows you that Bob Gale will go to anything. Yeah, yeah you exactly. will. You will. Yeah. <laughs> Rich and I were saying that last night. That Bob Gale is the one individual, aside from maybe Christopher Lloyd, that is like. Whatever anyone <laughs> wants to do about Back to the Future, you know, I'm there. Like, let yeah. me. Ha- this is my spotlight. I'll I'll take it. Whereas, like Zemeckis has gone on to win Oscars and do bigger and better things. Well, yeah. some would regard. I I would still say these films are his his crowning achievement. But he certainly has done uh, other great work in other genres. And uh, Bob Gale, of course, this is this is his this was his moment and still is his moment. Yeah, very much so. No, we talked guys earlier when I said earlier about the fact that there's a lot of the stuff that's carried on in the second and third films which you could argue are happy accidents isn't there that line in the first film where Doc says hey, what if I wanted to go and see who wins the next 25 world series yeah, yeah. but then that becomes the crux of the, the whole plot point in the second yeah. film with Marty getting the grey sports almanac and thinking you know maybe I'll do a bit of betting and you know earn some money on the side which then obviously becomes this huge sort of world changing event for him yeah. But you know, even that one little line in the first film that was just shown as an example of what you could do with time travel then gets expanded on into this really clever and brilliantly done kind of plot device in the second film. Yeah. But overall, guys, we we've said how perfect the first you know the first film is, how much we love it. What are your thoughts on Back to the Future Part Two? It for me, I can't be objective with with these films. But if I if I, if I have to force myself to be objective, the the flaws of the trilogy come in in Back to the Future Two. They're the areas that that if I have to if I have to find anything bordering on slightly negative, it will be in Back to the Future 2. And I think that that is more about the fact that I hold Back to the Future and Back to the Future 3 then in such high regard that because I think of the fact that we've got that slightly more goofy comedy uh, within the future. And again, I, I love the future sequences. Even now, as I said before, when I watch it, I don't think to myself, well, that's wrong, that's wrong, that's wrong. I, I'm, I'm, I'm along for the ride, and 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 it's it's as fun as it ever was. Um, and and the you know the hoverboard sequence is is phenomenal. It is so well executed. When you look at the work that went that went into filming that, and how many practical effects. There's there's only an, a, a tiny smattering of CGI in there, and that's more about the 
the um, the pit bull board when it comes out of the, the carry case. It's practical effects. It it and it's it is done so so well. And I think that, that then you know when you go when you look at all of the problems that were going on behind the scenes and and sort of the stuff that came after, particularly uh, with the Crispin Glover issues. My question to you two would be sort of how how well do you think that they that they use the George McFly character? I mean. We, obviously, there's been all the controversy after whereby, you know, there's very different reasons that have been publicised why Chris McGlover wasn't in Back to the Future 2, which then obviously that led on to the lawsuit about the use of the prosthetics that, that he didn't have, he didn't give permission for. So where they, although they recast, they used the, the, the prosthetics templates that, the, or, or the, 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 what we used to make the prosthetics to make Crispin Glover prosthetics to then make Jeffrey Wiseman look like Crispin Glover. You, you know, there's, there's, there's that, that led to a court case, which led to, became law that filmmakers could no longer do that without the permission. If you were going to use, you know, the sequences of George McLeod from the first film, there's, there's no issue with those being used. But what, what became but what, what became in law illegal then was to use the prosthetics to make somebody look like a human being rather than a character. But what they also did, Rich, didn't they? The, the thing that you objected to was the fact that they used, um, in that newspaper clip, in the, they used an image of Crispin Glover as George McFly. No, I think, I think, I think that's where it's got sort of lost in translation that those photographs were publicity photographs that were owned by right. uh, universal so there was they, they could use that as much as they wanted to likewise the the clips of any any sort of deleted images or anything that was filmed mm. for it actually what crispin glover took them to court over was the use of the prosthetics whereby you are you are making somebody look like me you're not making them look like george mcfly you're making them look like me and obviously he is George McFly, so there's an element of that. But the court won, you know, the court awarded in his favour. But obviously, Bob Gale is is very, very kind of open about the fact that Crispin Glover wanted the same money as as, as um, Michael J. Fox, and and he and he simply wouldn't budge on it. Whereas Crispin Glover comes back with, no, I wanted the same money as yeah. Thomas Wilson and Leah Thompson. I didn't want the same money as as, as Michael J. Fox. So there yeah. was an issue over money. There were many, I think there were many issues and there's along also the way. There's also a rumor that he, at that point in his career, didn't want to play the same character more than once. That yeah. he was a, a, he was an artist and he didn't feel that he ever wanted to revisit a character again in a film. That once he did a character, that was it. And yeah. whether yeah. or not that's true, I, I mean, only he knows <laughs> but, but i mean he's, he's given an interview re- very recently about but uh, where he says that you know had they had they not used those prosthetics had they just recast him as they did recast jennifer yeah it, it, there would never have been an issue but he says that he's he he believes that robert zemeckis and, and bob gale what they've tried to do there is fool the audience into thinking that 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 it is Crispin Glover. And, and to a certain extent, they did. They tried to they tried to mimic his voice. Everything. Yeah. Uh, they really. Uh, and I, I'll be honest. When I was when the first, when Back to the Future came out, Back to the Future Part Two came out, I did not know it wasn't him. I just no. thought assumed it was no. the same actor. Me neither. At that yeah. point, yeah. So they were. They did an effective job. And well, from an audience from an from an audience's point of view, they, they they I think they did it really well. You know. You mm-hmm. know. I'm not, I'm not commenting on the kind of the 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 morality of it, but I do think right, that they right. did. They, they did. They did a very. They did a very effective job for the purpose of the story, and you go from all of the positivity then um, and the fun of the future, and then the first gut punch of 1985A is they've killed George McFly. <laughs> yeah. Which, and which, I, but I think from that point of view, the fact that his absence from the film is is well used. They integrate him into the film. It, it works perfectly then with the alternate 1985 stuff. Yeah, it does. Yeah, it does. Yeah. And I, I, I think it, it kind of. 
if if there was ever a kind of a theory that Back to the Future 2 was all about getting to Back to the Future 3, what Back to the Future 2 does do is resolve plot points, resolve any any loose hanging threads that, that were pretty much tied up anyway, but there's the yeah. occasional. But what it does do is it ties up, by the time you get to Back to the Future 3, you're not wondering about Jennifer, you're not wondering about George McFly. Yeah. It's very much Doc Brown's story by the it time is, we get yeah. to Back to the Future 3. It and it's a fun, mind-bending, time-twisting kind of romp back through the greatest hits of the first film and, and sets us off onto this, such an open film for Back to the Future 3. Right, Carl Sagan, right, who is a far cleverer guy than the three of us put together, he said it's the greatest film ever made about time travel, so I'm not going to argue with him. <laughs> well, it, and it, I will say that, it, and this is not in any way my opinion, but the critical consensus, at least on Rotten Tomatoes, is that the second film is is the weakest. It gives it only a 65%, still technically fresh. The first film gets a 96%, which is as yeah. close to perfection as you can get. And the third one gets a solid 80%. So without a doubt, the third, the second one does is considered, at least from critics, to be the weakest. But I think, and and, and because they were shot, second, the second and third one were shot together, and, and I can't watch the second one to completion without getting right into the third one, no. I still view them as one long movie. Well, so, you know, if you're going to use Rotten Tomatoes, I yeah. look. Rotten Tomatoes for me is a completely flawed yardstick oh, yeah, by yeah, which to measure. Yeah. You know, if you go by IMDb, the second film actually rates higher than the third in terms of both the user reviews and the Metacritic score. Right. You know, I, I know Back to the Future Part Two has had a lot of people picking apart its flaws and you know commenting on how silly it is. And you know, like I say, I I, I think that 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 first act. There's a lot of silly elements in it, which I think they run with. I think maybe I wish they pulled back a little bit on them. Mm-hmm. But you go on then into the second and third acts. There's so much that this film does well. And it, oh. it, and it you're on you the, know, the ambition of the film. You are yeah. literally, yeah. there's not a moment to breathe no. once you get to the alternate 1985. You are just, even if that mm. first act is sort of fluff, and it kind of is, it once you get, once the, the real sort of issues are, arise because there's really no real issue with the whole thing with biff and his gang uh, sorry griff and his gang uh that's again that's just sort of uh, a setup you know but uh once you get back to 85 and it's all changed like you are just you were right with marty on this Mm. trying to figure out what happened how are we going to fix it and it doesn't let up until the very very end it doesn't even let up then you know i think the first film you know marty inadvertently changes the future doesn't he you know he he causes he causes a problem which he then has to resolve but then as he says the doc he said oh yeah you know um my dad he you know he, he, he knocked biff out he's never stood up against anyone like that in his life and doc says really yeah and he's thinking hmm this could be this could have an effect yeah Yeah. so then we obviously see the ripple effect we see that marty has changed the altered the past which has then altered the future but then everything is all nice and rosy and you know it's just a a perfect ending back to the future part two is that sort of moralistic tale of these are the perils of time travel this is why time travel should never be an ultimate it is the reason that doc brown wanted the time machine destroyed Yep. He says, you know, yeah. yes. he says, I wish I'd never invented this this infernal time machine. And I think from that point of view, Back to the Future Part Two is completely justified in its existence. The way that it plays with narrative, and we actually go, you know, we've got a character that's a few days older than his previous self, but he's going back in time and interacting with his previous self from a few days ago in a time period thirty years before he was before he lived. Yeah, the whole 
idea and 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 the the fact that Galen Zemeckis had the balls to even attempt this, I think, and the, and the way it's pulled off so well. It's yeah, flawless. First, it's flawless. It is, yes. The second and third acts of Back to the Future Part 2, even though the, the first act for the longest time was my favourite of the entire trilogy, I just loved it, but I think maybe that was just my younger self. I do still, mm. to this day, absolutely love the feeling that you get when Marty is just walking out and thinking the future. The future. Because if I had a time, yeah. if I had a time yeah. machine, I would want to go back into the past. But I think my first protocol would be let's go into the future and see how much we're going to mess things up. Yeah. Or you yeah. know, fingers crossed, I end up stepping into some incredible utopia where we've solved all of the world's problems. Imagine how good that would be. Which it kind of you know, the future as depicted in Back to the Future Part Two is nowhere near the kind of future that we've seen in the likes of Blade Runner and films like that. But it was intentionally so, wasn't it? Yeah, it was, it was intentionally, intentionally so because because the film was going to get so dark in the middle portion, it, it had you know, it had to sort of balance up you know the lightness and the comedy. I absolutely love Back to the Future Part Two. I think it's easily one of the best film scores I've ever heard. I, I just I love the fact that it, it's a complete retread of the first film in many respects, but does it so well and is completely conscious of that fact and and it, it's actually i think that's the strength of the film because yeah. you could go into that second film having never seen the first film and completely understand what's happening and go right to the third film and yeah. enjoy them as independent as like a, a two film experience mm -hmm. all by themselves and i think that's actually a strength uh, whereas of course you watch the first film you gain even more insight into the characters but the fact that they do retread it is such a fascinating uh, way to bring your audience up to speed if they've forgotten anything or haven't seen the first film. Yeah. It's really quite it brilliant. Was, it was so ballsy, wasn't it? It was yeah. such a ballsy thing to do because they they could have they could have quite easily have spent the whole film in 2015 and right. then gone back at the end. You know, they, they 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 didn't have to do that. That was and where and that wasn't. I don't think it was driven by look at what we can do. There was a there was an element of that, but it was about you know. 
well, why not? What if? Yeah. And as, as Doc says, you know, it's just, there's something about 1955. The, the, you know, from 1985A onwards, I think that, as you say, it, it just does not let up at all. And then we didn't we didn't even talk about um, the end sequence of Back to the Future when when the DeLorean is sent back. But then we get to revisit it now, don't we? Because we'll talk yeah. about it now with Back to the Future too. We've got we've got old old Doc meeting uh, meeting younger Doc when when he first sort of travels up there and hands him the uh, oh, yeah. The, the wrench yeah the, the old what are you doing I conducted the weather experiment and yeah. it's just yeah it's beautiful it, it, it is it gives us these little set pieces that no other film has ever been able to do because no other film has got this setup where you've got characters going back and revisiting events of a previous film it's never been done before yeah. and it, yeah. it, it can't be done since and unless it completely rips off this film so from that point of view, Back to the Future Part 2 is one of the most unique films in terms of plot that you will ever see. And I've I, I got to say it, I've always loved the film. There was, there was a time where younger me actually preferred this film to the other two. And it's hard for me to sort of get away from that. I know that the first film is is perfect. I know that this film is not. My opinion on the third film has been the one that's varied the most because it was the one I probably liked the least, but it's now the one which every time I watch it, I love it that much more. Whereas my opinion on the first two films has always remained kind of fixed. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I, I love Back to the Future 2 and yes, it does get things wrong, but when you're going to be so ambitious and you're going to throw so much at the viewer, a lot of it's not going to stick, a lot of it is not going to work. And when you're creating a plot that is as kind of complex as this, it is going to be kind of quite hard for some people, not us, but it's going to be quite hard for some people to digest. But I just love the film. And, and I think that if you think about the challenges they were faced with, A, as we've mentioned, they had to write themselves out of a hole from the ending mm -hmm. of the first film. B, they couldn't get Crispin Glover back. They couldn't get Claudia Wells back. Like, they had some really big issues to contend with. Really, uh, yeah, they really did. If you think yeah. about it, those, those three things alone could be enough to say, we can't do this you know we yeah, we can't sure. but and they took a chance they as you said they were really ballsy and sort of going for it and just saying we're gonna assume our audiences will will go for this ride and accept these uh, changes and, and imperfections and just enjoy the experience of watching these sequels and uh, I, again for me i almost can't separate them as much no. as i have i do sort of as time has passed, I do see, I see the whole trilogy as one thing now. I really do. I sort of see all three films as one piece of entertainment, even though, yes, you can, you can separate them and look at the individual qualities of each film. I just see that they all, for me, play together um, so beautifully in retrospect. And uh, that's, that's fine for me. I don't need to argue which one is better than the other. You know what I mean? Certainly the first one is the original, the masterpiece. But uh, from, from there, I think the second two films just play so perfectly together. So many elements that are introduced in the second film pay off beautifully in the third film. It's just such a, a, a again, nuanced and robust experience that there are plenty of great films that I've only ever watched one time. And that's all I ever want to watch them, you know? But this is, these are films that I just cannot, literally cannot get enough of them. I will watch yeah. them probably once a year for the rest of my life. Yeah. And, I, and, I'm, and I'm excited to watch them again in October when they have the 4K release come out. So, yeah, I, I, you know, it's just, although as, as Rich and I were discussing that 
it, the resolution might be so high that we'll notice even more of the yeah. imperfections in the makeup and prosthetics that were uh, <laughs> done. We were we were noticing, for example, um, uh, Strickland's neck uh, as well as Doc Brown's neck in the opening yeah. scenes of Back to the Future One. That even on Blu-ray, you start to see you know those those wrinkles and prosthetics. Yeah. But, yeah. But I, I, again, I, that, that's just reminded me of something. Again, uh, the the kind of the cleverness of of the, of the writing and everything. They how they at the beginning of Back to the Future Two, where Doc is obviously looks the older self, but he's had he's had that that clinical rejuvenation. So <laughs> yeah. essentially, we we've written a device so that. Christopher Lloyd doesn't have to wear the old makeup anymore for the whole film. Exactly, yeah. It's brilliant. It's it good. really is. Yeah. It is, it is. You can genuinely think that, that in 30 years' time, there will you'll be able to do that. You'll just have, you know, a few injections, a bit of a, you know, and you'll you'll add 30 years to your life. It, it's he, even had his, he even had his colon replaced. <laughs> yes, yeah. <laughs> right, uh, so Back to the Future Part 2 was released on November 22nd, 1989. It cost twice as much as the first film, which isn't surprising given how special effects heavy it was, but it went on to gross... $335 million worldwide, which is slightly less than the first film, but it's still, you know, it's a none too shabby box office gross. And that was followed then uh, the following summer, May 25th, 1990, by the film uh, that was filmed back to back with it, Back to the Future Part 3. All you have to do is drive the time vehicle directly toward that screen, accelerating 88 miles an hour. Wait a minute, Doc. If I drive straight towards the screen, I'm going to crash into those Indians. Marty. Not thinking fourth dimensionally. They'll instantly be transported to 1885, and those Indians won't even be there. Right. Well, good luck for both of our sakes. See you in the future. You mean the past? Exactly.
Yeah, so Back to the Future Part 3 also cost an estimated $40 million, the same as Back to the Future Part 2. It went on to gross $246 million worldwide. It's interesting that it, it would, by today's standard, be considered an underperformer, even though that's still a very solid box office return mm-hmm. on a $40 million oh, yeah. budget. But um, yeah, it's it's interesting to think that why did as many people want to see how it resolved in the theater? You know, that's it's it always kind of perplexed me because I couldn't wait. Right, that seven month difference was an eternity yeah. <laughs> for yeah. me. Yeah, mm. uh, yeah, yeah, you're so right. You're so right with that. Maybe it was repeat viewings, perhaps. Uh, maybe you know, yeah. perhaps people were a bit disappointed. But I mean, I yeah. can't believe that to be honest. But no. it, but may, maybe that's what it was. Yeah, I, I mean, I, we discussed earlier how it starts off um, obviously with a recap of the of the finale of the second film, and that actually is one of my favorite moments in all the films as well. Is when. Doc, oh, cheers that he sent Marty mm-hmm. back and is successful. And then all of a sudden you see Marty run down the street and he looks at him and he has that great like shriek. Uh, and, and, and he goes, I just sent you back to the future. That's right, Doc. You did, but I'm back. I'm back from the future. And then the musical cue, like it's just such, it gives me chills, you know. Yeah. And it's just such a powerful moment because what must be going through Doc's brain right now, you know? Like he just achieved something that he never imagined he could he he could achieve by sending uh, this boy, you know, back in a time machine that he built from the future. And then here he is again, wearing different clothes, and he's back. It's just such a brilliant moment, and and I just love that he he just kind of collapses in the middle of the street. Uh, and then, of course, you see the opening in the storm, you know, the storm that caused the lightning storm that caused the uh, the clock tower to be destroyed. You see Marty, dra- you know, basically lift Doc Brown over his shoulder out of his car and bring him into his house. And then yeah. there's that great sequence, very melancholy music where and it's kind of it kind of echoes the, the opening scene of the first film where you have this pan down from some you know i think it was you know einstein and um uh, a few other you know famous scientists yeah thomas edison, um, Ed, Ed, thomas edison and yeah mm-hmm. and then it pans down to the fireplace and you see the letter that he had written that mark that marty received from the dock from the old west which had gotten wet from the rain it was drying on like a little, little line in front of the fire and you see their socks and their shoes in front of the fire it's just one of those yeah. and you know it's just a great little sequence and then marty's sleeping with his feet up on the levitating on the hoverboard and it's just a great little moment where you see you get a lot of explanation of what has transpired without saying anything right yeah. it's just this great little setup and then of course doc wakes up howdy duty time uh, and he doesn't have any recollection of what just occurred he doesn't even notice that marnie's sitting there in one of his chairs he's yes. just racing around his house like a maniac uh, and one of my favorite comical moments is when he the doc uh goes into his bathroom he's like i refuse to believe this is happening <laughs> he like slams the door it's just brilliant because he just can't comprehend the sort of the magnitude of the events that have uh if you think about all the things that have transpired in his life in the previous week it's just mind-blowing so yeah. do you do you think that, that at that point doc is actually doubting that any of what marty told him is true I, it's possible yeah it's possible but as soon as he gets the letter right as soon as he sees the letter from himself I think he's made a believer again. Yeah, because he says, doesn't he? He says, if 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 the me from the future is now in the past, how can I possibly know about it? Because he calls him Future Boy again, doesn't he? A future exactly. Boy was that, always this kind he, of. Exactly, it's like this derogatory term he had for him, yeah. uh, assuming he was some kind of fraud, some kind yeah. of fake. Because because then when they're in the museum and they're reading the book and they see and Doc sees his photo, he, he says it's true, all of it. It's kind of like that for me was 
is he talking about just the fact that his future self has been sent back to 1885 or is he actually saying everything is true is that the actual is that the, the, the first time that it, for him even though he's seen himself on the video clip in the first film you know from the future it, that for me was was his final sort of definite realization that actually it is all true yeah that like it, that maybe this is much bigger than he ever realized right it's yeah not, it wasn't just one you know mistake that marty made sending himself back to 1955 that there's a lot more going on here yeah. the whole story is much bigger yeah, that there's yeah. a future you know and then of course he he learns about the future and the hoverboard and all of that so you know he definitely starts to have this i think he has this realization that there's a much bigger chain of events that have taken place beyond yeah. that of which he he currently realizes yeah. and i also wonder if there were other adventures that maybe the doc had once he went into the future that we never learned about because of that suitcase he has at the end of the second film with all the money all the currency from yes. different, different times right guys if you if you look at the first film yeah at the beginning at twin pines mall doc says he's thinking of going i think he says 25 years into the future yes he does yeah right then i think at the end of the film, I think he says thirty years. Is a, you know because it, it, it sounds like a nice number, nice round number, nice yeah. round yeah. number. Yeah. Right. But does he go back on his original intention of going twenty five years into the future? In which case, he would have land ended up in two thousand and ten. Does he then right. live there for five years? Obviously, he has the surgery done. He has his colon replaced. <laughs> you know, he he, he builds he spent up a significant amount of yeah. time. There. He's, he's, yeah, I, I, you know, I think he spent more than a couple of months in in twenty fifteen. I think he actually oh, yeah. may have been there for a couple of years. But he says, doesn't he? He went further into the future to find, and and then he traced everything back to what had yeah. gone wrong. That's so he's we don't know whether that's months or years and, and because he had the rejuvenation uh you know procedure he could be far older right mm, than, yeah. than yeah. what he than what we might think he is so he could be 10 years older for all we know and just look like he did because yeah. of that procedure so there were very well could be other adventures that he had farther back in the past who knows i mean it's, yeah, yeah. it's, it's not explained Doc and Marty work out that they've got to get Marty back to 1885. One of the things that just amazes me is the fact that they built a drive-in theatre in the middle of Monument Valley where, <laughs> yes. where, you know, where John Ford had filmed so many legendary westerns. And, you know, when I when I, when I was a kid, I just thought, oh, you know, that's a pretty cool location. But as I grew up and actually started watching more John Ford films and then thinking, hang on, that, those big massive stone towers, those incredible formations of nature, they're the same ones from Back to the Future Part 3. They actually, you know, built it all out there and then when he does go back in time and again like one of my favorite things about and it will come to a scene later on in this film which is maybe my favorite scene in the whole trilogy but it relates to the delorean as a character and the fact that in all of these films we've seen the evolution of the delorean as a character and the fact that we now see the oldest iteration of the delorean because it's, it's been lying in that cave for 70 years and the fact that now the tires are all rotten you know a lot of the technology on it you know kind of no longer works and needs to be replaced with 1955 components because you've got that you know, there's, there's like a, a like a, a wooden tray that's got coca-cola written on the side of it <laughs> yeah. which actually holds is like the housing for the for the new version of the time circuits yeah Pepsi, essentially Pepsi that, that microchip that pepsi cola so yes pepsi cola yeah, yeah. That microchip that had yeah yeah had fried is that's the microchip that giant tray yeah <laughs> yeah because yeah. it's, it's because even in like Doc's letter he says that a lot of these components won't be available until at least like 1947 that's yeah. right, and yeah. you know it's just the, the the fact that we've now got the third iteration of the DeLorean and we even see like within this film later on when they take off the 1955 tires and replacing them with you know train wheels yeah. Right. 
And, you know, we're seeing the third iteration of the car now. And then, you know, Marty goes back in time. Because the plot of this film is pretty much the most straightforward of the three, it just allows the film to just go full on into character. Yes, we've got the, the continuation and resolution of the whole Marty thing of, you know, the fact that he doesn't like being called a chicken, which was introduced in the second film. But then, as you said before, Rich, this third film, this is Doc Brown's story. Yeah. And what I love about it is... You know, the first two films, as I've said, especially the second, they crack along at such a breakneck pace. But what three does so well is that it just slows things down, gives us these character moments. But then you've got Doc and Marty in some ways trade places because Doc finds love and becomes, you know, kind of irresponsible. And it's Marty who now has to remind him of the dangers of messing around with the past, which yeah. he has learned in the second film as to what yeah. can happen. But Doc doesn't care about this now because he's letting his heart overrule his mind. So across the three films, you could argue that Doc has got the most sort of character development. Yeah, but he's gone from this. He's gone from this lonely, this this lonely old man who's, who's befriended a, a boy, sort of how many years younger than him, we don't know. And and yeah, and he's kind of gone. But he he, he he does say it in two, doesn't he? When he says, you know, he's gonna destroy the time machine and devote his life to that life's other great mystery women. So that's the first kind of indication yeah. that the, there's anything kind of sexual about yeah. Doc Brown, isn't it? It's, 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 yeah. it, it that, that was a, a nice little setup for the fact that he does eventually meet Claire, you know, that he, he'll yeah. meet Clara in the mm. third film. Yeah. Um, you know, one, one thing I, I, we touched upon earlier is, you know, that we didn't really get to, but is that why is Marty friends with this, with Doc Brown? And apparently there was an early treatment or, are notes that were written by Bob and, and Robert Zemeckis that detailed the fact that basically, and here I found I found it, this is a quote, he said, Marty, being a boy of age, aged 13 or 14, was told his whole life that Doc Brown was this dangerous crackpot, a lunatic. So being a, a red-blooded American teenager, he decided to find out just why this guy was so dangerous. So he snuck into Doc's lab and was fascinated by all the cool stuff that was there. When Doc found him there, he was delighted to find that Marty thought he was cool and accepted him for what he was. Both of them were the black sheep in their respective environments. So Doc gave Marty a part-time job to help him with the experiments and tend to his lab and feed his dog when he was not home. So I, I think that's interesting that they don't have to say it. And that's the interesting. They never have to explain it, but they both sort of, they were the black sheep and they found one another. And I think yeah. that friendship is carried throughout the entire film. It didn't matter that the age difference existed, right? They were friends because they had a, they were kindred spirits if you will yes. you know they yeah. were connected despite the time difference no pun intended <laughs> yeah yeah so. there's so much about this film that you know I, I just love the more i watch and the fact that it is a western as well and yeah as i've gone on in life I, i've just watched more and more westerns and, and become more of a fan of westerns and back to the future part three just resonates much more with me now than it did 30 years ago when I first saw it in you know, the summer of 1990. Same here. I, I didn't even know, I didn't really know who Clint Eastwood was in 1990. Mm. I mean, I knew of him, but I hadn't seen a single film of his. So all of that changed, obviously, because of yeah. this movie. You know, Dean Cundy's cinematography across all three films is amazing. But in this film, like, look at that scene of Clara at the train station with the train pulling in towards us to stop. With all the steam. Coming, yeah, the steam kind of coming out and, like, bellowing at her feet. It's just as good as anything you will see in, like, a classic Western. And we yeah. talked about amazing casting. Mary Steenburgen as Clara Clayton is this another perfect bit of casting you say about little moments rich that you know you say about the your mother laughing at that one bit with doc's reaction there's that one bit in the saloon where marty's doing the moonwalking and yes it just yeah. everyone just goes completely quiet and then that one of the the three old guys sat at the table just says shit <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> it's, it's just the single greatest delivery of that word yeah. I've ever heard. Yeah. It's, it does, it's just so little. Yeah, it it does. It does. Back to the Future Part Three. It is just the, like the perfect wrapping up, not from a plot point of view. Because, like I say, it's very straightforward. But from a character point of view, the way it ends with Doc actually finding love, finding a family, his story is is kind of left with some hope that he's going to carry on with these time travel adventures. But going on to that scene at the end, which is is possibly my favourite, just from a point of view of how it makes me feel. Now, I've always been one. I, I don't like it when films that I love are brought to an end. It's certainly one of the biggest sort of problems I had for a while with The Return of the King. I didn't want this story to end. And especially because of the fact that it was so emotionally intense, it kind of put me off that film for a little bit. And you know, I, it took me a long time to you know, resolve myself of my feelings towards it. It was the same when I was a kid with ET. I could not, I couldn't deal with ET as a, as a young kid because it was just too emotional for me. But then there's this one scene at the end of the third film, which is just, it's just perfect. But at the same time, it's also sad because the one character that follows us throughout this film is the DeLorean. This film wouldn't exist without the DeLorean, and it is a character you know, in another self. But it's the scene at the end with Marty and Jennifer. Exp- you know, inspecting what is left of the destroyed DeLorean. Yeah. It's just the emotional resonance, resonance of the fact that Marty's time travel journey is now over. And, you know, as I said, that car had gone through all of those visual changes and crossed the film. But it's it's just, again, Alan Silvestri, he knows exactly what to do with the music. And it's just the fact that they stood there looking at the wreckage and we see, like, the number plate with the, the, the barcode scanner that, you know, that was from 2015. We see the Mr. Mm. Fusion. Just all the different elements. It, it's, it, it's a... It's a piece of material, really. But yeah. the fact that it's Marty just accepting the fact that his journey's come to an end. But then, as Bob Gale and Bob Zemeckis are so good at doing, it's not over because they get blown off their feet. Doc Brown has come back with a time-traveling train. You know, the way it just wraps up. And by the time those credits come up with the end, you think, yeah, I, I'm end. happy this the end. I yeah. don't want anything else. And that's why Back to the Future 4 will be a perfect example of this is why things should never go too far. This is why certain sequels should never be made because Back to the Future 4 should always remain an idea you know, as Bob Gale and Bob Zemeckis have said, three is a great number. It's an edgy number. It it, it works in terms of a, a three act structure. Four is boring. Four is safe. Yeah, yeah. If you're going to do a fourth, you have to do three more. I feel like you have you can't, and they yeah. shouldn't. They should never yeah. do that. But yeah. no. you can't do one more story that's going to be effective and be a standalone story yeah. that would be in any way improve upon what they've already done. Rich, you and I saw that last year with Toy Story Four. Because yeah. as much as it was possibly better than we were expecting, it was still taking a perfect trilogy of films and adding another film that just wasn't as good as the other three. And from that point of view, for me then, doesn't justify its existence. It, well, everything everything that needs to happen to the characters has happened, yeah. hasn't it? You know, by this point. And, and Doc deserves a film. Doc doesn't deserve to have a subplot. Doc deserves... Back to the Future Three, you know. Mm-hmm. We, when you think about it, Marty, he's the vessel with which we see everything. We see everything through his eyes, but actually, he's not the main character through the through any of the films. Really, it's George's story as the first because we because Marty is there to facilitate George's George's change. Marty is there to make his parents happier. I know we've got the you know you've got the comments about the fact that one of the again crispin glover's issues with back to the future and and many other people's would be the fact that it's so kind of 80s in as much as george and lorraine have more money by the end they're more they're they're more successful therefore more they're more happy which you know you can sort of see that there's an element to that there but actually what it is is he's turned his 
interactions with George and Lorraine has actually kind of inspired that self-confidence and made him stand up to bullies and therefore he's more successful, which has brought money. So they're, they're happier through their success and their confidence. Then with Back to the Future 2, that's where you could argue that it's perhaps a way of getting to three because you're just planting the seeds for Doc. You're planting the seeds for those for, for Doc's development. And that's why, Adam, where you said before, I agree that I see... Whilst I see them all as one story, I see them as a trilogy, if you had to divide them up, and it's not just about the fact they were made back to back, but I see Back to the Future and then Back to the Future 2 and 3. This seems to be, Back to the Future has that nice ending, but actually 2 and 3 tell a larger story picking up the threads so it, it really back to the future two and three really is doc's story because it's kind of setting up it's dealing with the threads and setting up and then so as we can go on and, and doc brown he very much deserves that you don't need to know any more about any of the you know biff gets his comeuppance griff gets his comeuppance mad dog gets his comeuppance that you know it, that that's all kind of b- sort of by the by marty is a, a, a far more content happier confident person we saw signs of his unconfidence which mm. are kind of hinted at in the first one whereby he's you know for, with a band audition but he's sort of flowered and his internal confidence now exists more so because his parents are more confident and and what have you i think that the main the core characters they're done they they we've we, we, you know everyone's everyone is as happy and content as they can be yeah. adam do you agree that it you know, as far as a, a trilogy capper goes, Back to the Future 3 is as good as it possibly could have been. Yeah, I, I actually think it's probably my favorite. If you judge a trilogy based on how many times you watch it, it's probably my favorite trilogy in that sense. I, I can't. Yeah. I've owned every iteration from VHS to widescreen VHS to DVD to Blu-ray, and, I, and I've already pre-ordered this new set, as I mentioned, that's coming out in October. So I... I can't get enough of it. And what's brilliant about that is that I don't necessarily want more movies. I just want to watch the same three movies over and over again and just Mm -hmm. relive. Or as we said earlier, as we grow, as we age, we see new things. We we relate to characters differently. And I think that's true with these films. As as we get older, we might we start to relate a little bit more with Doc, you know, than we do perhaps with Marty as we did as we were younger. And that's okay. I think that's an interesting perspective Mm. to take on. Or we relate more to Marty's parents in the first film, you know, as parents dealing with all the challenges that you have to deal with. So that's why films are interesting. They continue in a way like felt like photography images. They continue to develop with time, continue to develop. Right. They continue to grow on us in new and interesting ways. And these films, I think, do that more than more than almost any other trilogy of films that I can think of. You know, certainly I will always love the the original Star Wars trilogy, but there's something about these Back to the Future films that is just so, as I mentioned earlier, life-affirming. It just kind of makes you feel good about life and also just makes you really contemplate and think life and time, existence, all of that. It really, it gets in, it kind of gets its claws into you once you start watching them again and makes you evaluate your own path, right? Mm-hmm. Your own past and your own future yeah and and if i think adam you and again like i i don't think i could sum my feelings about the trilogy up any better than what you've done there but one thing i will say is the fact that you say it's the a perfect trilogy it's also for me it's an untainted trilogy you know as, as i just mentioned the the aforementioned toy story trilogy when you add the fourth film to it for me and i know rich you feel the same it kind of dilutes the overall quality because if you've got three films which for me are a 10 out of 10 the originals toy story toy story 2 and toy story 3 they're all tens. 
They're phenomenal. And if you take yeah. this fourth film, that's a seven out of ten. It's a simple law of mathematics. It, it's a, it lowers the average. The Lord of the Rings trilogy. Now, James Hancock has gone on record several times to say that his love of that trilogy, which was intense, was sullied when those three Hobbit films came out. Now, I don't feel the same way. I'm able to kind of separate the two. And I yeah. understand the reasons why that Hobbit trilogy was never going to be anywhere near as good as it could have been, but it was never going to be because it, it should never have been a trilogy. But the fact is, those films were, were made in a completely different set of circumstances to the original Lord of the Rings trilogy. For me, I will still probably lean towards the Lord of the Rings trilogy as being my favorite trilogy. But again, I don't even want to make that sort of distinction because, you know, same as the Star Wars trilogy. The more Star Wars films they add, the more the overall quality of the Star Wars franchise for me seems to be diluted, more so than any other franchise probably. I still completely love that original Star Wars trilogy. Unfortunately, Star Wars and Return of the Jedi have been altered to the point where, you know, the additions actually detract from the overall quality of the film. The Empire Strikes Back, not so much. It's for me just remains a perfect film but this Back to the Future trilogy because nothing's been added to it because there's no further films you know any further adventures of Doc and Marty have not been done you know other than the kids TV show or whatever it's stuff that you can just instantly dismiss it's not canon in, in, in my eyes it, it is a, a perfect untouched trilogy and as Bob Zemeckis and Bob Gillis said in their lifetimes, they will make sure that they will never see any further Back to the Future films. I know Christopher Lloyd has said he would jump at the chance, but, you know. And he unfortunately did in 2015 do a 10-minute short yeah. film that was quite painful to experience. It was, so, it was. Uh, you know, that's a perfect example. I'm sure they threw some cash at him, and he was like, all right, sign me up. But, uh, I, you know, I, I'll just add that I'm probably in the minority in that if people want to try something, like, for example, if they want to make, when they made that Ghostbusters new film, I, I didn't love it. I didn't hate it, but it doesn't take away from me the 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 what I love so much about that first original film. I've just been one of those people that can separate. You know, same thing with the Hobbit trilogy. Like I actually enjoyed just spending some more time in Peter Jackson's Middle Earth. Yes, they weren't anywhere near what the Lord of the Rings films were, and and they and Lord of the, I would agree with you that that's right up there. The the Lord of the Rings trilogy is right up there with in in my top trilogies. It, mm. It's but they're so different, like you were saying from Back to the Future. That for if I want to feel a really, if I don't want, if I want a life-affirming experience, and I want to laugh, and I want to feel happy, Back to the Future is my go-to <laughs> trilogy. Yeah. Anyway, I, I, I agree with everything you're saying, though. I just, um, I, I find myself able to separate the bad from the good. If I, if it's bad, I'll just be like, all right, I don't know, it just it didn't exist. <laughs> yeah. just, you know, I just pretend it didn't exist. But the thing about it is, sometimes I, I'm almost a proponent of them trying things. In this case, I wouldn't want them to do it with Back to the Future, but a good example is like Mad Max Fury Road. If they hadn't attempted to redo it with a new actor, we wouldn't have that masterpiece that I yeah. never thought could have existed, right? So I don't mind when, when they try, because even if it takes 100 bad remakes or bad remakes, re reboots to get one great one, I'm almost okay with that because I want that magic to re, you know, to happen if it can. I just will have to throw out the garbage <laughs> and yeah, pretend yeah. it and didn't exist, you know. As and, Neil has said, you know, sometimes bad films are stepping stones for good films. If we didn't right. have Rocky Five, then it wouldn't have led to the, you know, masterpiece that was Rocky Balboa. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So if you have to just forget <laughs> that mm. you ever saw that bad film, then you know, so so be it. These films are just uh, will always hold a special place in my heart. And that's how I, all I can say, you know. And Rich, obviously, as Back to the Future is your favorite film, we will mm -hmm. give you we will give you the last word on this trilogy. 
Well, I, I, you, you, you set me up to fail there because I don't think I could say uh, this was my this was my sort of concern going into this for a film that it, for a film trilogy that is so important to me and so much part of of my life to to do it any kind of justice. I've got so many notes. I've got so many things we could talk about. It's just it, it is it it's perfect for me. It's perfect, and I think that the fact that there have been no further films, and even thirty years later, Bob Zemeckis and Bob Gale still uh, stand by the fact that there will be no further films in, in, in their lifetime i think that that's a testament to the value of what we've got of what it is they know that they could have made we could have been on back to the future 12 by now i'm sure they've had plenty of so much money thrown at them but i think that they're leading the way there they're a shining example of, of stop at the top and, and that's what they've done i fully agree rich it's you know it's exactly the same reason you know we, we we haven't had back to the future 4 is the same reason we haven't had et2 and it's the same reason we never had a fourth indiana jones film <laughs> we never did right never yeah correct <laughs> that's a, but that's a perfect example for me where i i just kind of politely say no thanks and i don't need to watch that one again but i still love watching the original three you know yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, it's like terminator Absolutely. terminator and terminator 2 and then everything else is fine for exactly yeah yeah it's like, i fully agree yeah. I, I, and I don't mind trying. I'll always give those films a shot, but fortunately they keep disappointing me. But, you know, <laughs> you hope, right? You There's that little glimmer of hope that maybe it'll be brilliant. They might recapture that uh, magic in a bottle, as they say. But they it's so rare that they do, unfortunately. And sometimes it's just this perfect confluence of casting, of the time these films were made, of, yeah. of the good and the bad things, you know, budgetary constraints. All those things working just the right way. You know, as Rich and I were saying the other night, that there are so many films that in the last decade that have where the directors were fired or changed or whatever that were just disasters as a result, or the studio was meddled too much. The first film, despite all the problems and having to reshoot six weeks of, of, of your lead actor, I mean, it, and not having the budget to do the big end sequence they wanted to do, it, it, if you think about it, that movie should have not worked. Yeah. <laughs> it should have been a train wreck, and somehow it, it, it was made better for it, and that is just a remarkable achievement. So there you go, uh, listeners. We have talked for pretty much three hours on a trilogy of films that we absolutely love hopefully you know we've done it justice we've given you you know certainly adam has given us a bit of behind the scenes info regarding matthew modine's potential involvement at one point which i'd never even heard of until adam sort of dropped our little exclusive nugget but adam now that you've finally broken the seal on film 89 we would have you back in a heartbeat and i've got to say oh, thank you this has just been an absolute blast this this episode has been so long in the planning i think longer than any episode that we've we've ever done you know this was one of the first ones that me and richie discussed when we first started we said yeah we're, we're gonna have to get adam on to do back to the future at some point and then obviously as you know adam we tried last year things didn't happen you know problems came up you know the schedule got completely redone you know when i had the, the birth of my third child of course and then obviously 2020 came and hit us like a tidal wave of crap and uh <laughs> Yeah, you know, none of us were more affected than yourself, and we're just so glad that you know you're you're feeling much better now, and you've actually finally been able to to join us for this because it's just been an absolute blast, and and me and Richie were just so excited about talking about these films with you. Oh, thank you. I, feeling is mutual. Again, I, I, I thank Rich for encouraging me to literally go through every single bonus feature on that <laughs> box set because I had never done that. I had watched certain featurettes and things, but I just decided to plow through it all. And there, it's a lot of content. <laughs> 
and as we said, a lot a lot of recycled content, a lot of the yeah. same material used over and over again. But if if you if listeners want more, definitely dig deep in there because there's a lot of great mm. material to to really learn about how they made these films. Oh, and there really is. There really it, is. Yeah. It's it's definitely worth uh, the deep dive if you're if you're a fan. So Adam, where can people uh, reach you if they want to um, hit you up and chat about film on social media? Uh, as I mentioned, I'm on Twitter at Adam Rakoff, and I'm pretty, you know, unless I'm really busy with a project, I'm I'm pretty active on a daily basis. You know, I don't spend a ton of time on there, but if you tweet at me, I will definitely try to respond. You know, whether it's a question or whether it's just wanting to comment or discuss further any of the things that we discussed on this episode, I would be happy to do so because I can never honestly get never get enough uh, of Back to the Future. So uh, I look forward to listening to this episode. And and yes, I would love to, to come back whenever you guys have a topic you think I would be a good fit for. So thank you so much for having me. The, the pleasure is all ours. It really is. It's been it's everything I hoped and, and more. It's been fantastic. Richie, what about you? Uh, where can people reach you? Yeah, I'm on Twitter. Oh, what is it? At, at Richard underscore Roberts. That's I'm not I'm not on there very often. I, I, I'm there if you if you want to send me an abusive <laughs> message. Um, crack on. <laughs> That's the first thing I'm gonna do. Yeah. <laughs> and you can find me on Twitter and Facebook at Sky Movies. You can find all of us, the Film 89 team, at film89.co.uk. Uh, thank you so much our, our most recent episode episode 52 the Jaws audio commentary was just a huge success and is still just pulling down the downloads and the, the very kind comments from you all but if you could just take some time to please leave us uh, a positive review on Apple Podcasts that would do us a world of good you know we're just absolutely over two and a half years on now we're, we're just absolutely loving this and you know the podcast is just going from strength to strength and as Richie will attest we just never thought that it would blow up and become you know the, the the thing has become and we are just so grateful to you all and we will continue to churn out uh, this this content that you are clearly so enjoying and having fantastic guests like adam on as frequently as you can but for now um it just remains me to say if one other thing if you could please make a donation to the michael j fox foundation because he's an incredible guy he's gone through a hell of a lot over the years and please if you can donate it's a it's a wonderful cause you, you, your money will be going into research for for you know cures for parkinson's disease so please if you could that would be greatly appreciated that's it for now uh, we hope you enjoy the episode and i think that just leaves it to say uh, stay safe stay happy and remember your future is whatever you want it to be so make it a good one 